clubhouse. Do you need Bannister to escort you across the street? No, they'll collect me from here. Should we wish each other luck? <sighs> I do wish you luck, Contactness. And I know I've been a disappointment. Even I don't expect you to marry in order to please me. Thank you. But now you have two strikes against you, Marion. The second more public than the first. You can't afford another. No. I've said enough. Enjoy your evening. But remember, time passes quickly. Don't throw your life away. Welcome to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing the season two finale of the Gilded Age, episode eight, in terms of winning and losing. It was written by Lord Julian Fellows and directed by Michael Engler. Just a community note, if you want to continue the conversation and get some extra history notes, please join us on Facebook, the Gilded Age fan group, parentheses, HBO series. Ah, ah, finale episode finale episodes caroline we're terrible at doing finales we don't like to let go of our characters we get wrapped up in these stories and we hate to do the finale episode because it means we don't get to talk about them for sometimes like a year or more and that is always such a drag so i think we always do really terrible about sitting down because we'll rewatch and rewatch and rewatch and say oh we can still can rewatch because we haven't done the finale yet once we do the finale we feel like we're we're done and we have, we have to wait to, again we have to put it away in that drawer you know i don't like like it. With I don't your like spring it. clothes and your summer mm, clothes and your exactly. your season two shows, you just put it away in the drawer and not, and we probably won't revisit it again until we're getting ready for season three. That's right. We have waited so long to record this. The Gilded Age was actually officially renewed for season three since uh, the finale aired, which is great news. That hey, maybe that's what we'll say. We're saying we were waiting to record so we can say it was renewed. Yeah, 100%. I'm very glad that it's renewed. This was one of those finales where you're holding your breath because there was some unfinished business and you felt like, please don't let this just be the end of this. Like, please, let, please let there be a season three. And you guys, just a reminder that we've assumed you've watched this episode. Now, you've had lots of time. So we're not going to go step by step through this finale, but we are going to hit the highs and lows and things that we thought were important. So if you haven't watched, please go watch and then come on back. I actually did get very sick right leading up to like Christmas time and right when this episode was airing like literally didn't have a voice for like three days and just as i was getting better you fell ill so we actually <laughs> did have a legitimate reason on top of the fact that we are always very bad about recording season finales uh, and and at the time we thought maybe a, a, a series finale which i want to get to it because you said something very interesting now that there was some unfinished business and for sure there was but as a whole i'm curious what you thought of this as a finale because i thought if this was a series finale 
I thought it actually stood up pretty well. There was enough closure and the things that were left open were left open in a way of, well, I can imagine it on my own how it would have gone. I agree with you. I think this was an excellent finale in that it did wrap up quite a few things that it really needed to address. And then at the same time, there were some hints as to like, well, you know, there is more story to tell. So if we do go to season three, you know, here's just some sort of like just a little bit of like breadcrumbs for us. But at the same time, you're right. I felt pretty satisfied that, you know, the majority of our storylines came to a nice conclusion. They did wrap it up. They did deal with everything from unrequited love to our upper wars. They did. And they, like you said, they for sure tantalized several things that could be discussed in a season three, which was hypothetical at the time. But now we know will be occurring. Uh, I think at the end of this episode, when we're done with our conversation, I have a list of season three's predictions, questions and wish lists items. So we'll go through that. But let's let's finish season two before we get there. The old cart before the horse. Let's start with the opera wars. I uh, I summarized this as a duke is stolen, a Hector is found, passed around like an old shoe. What a great description of Hector, the Duke of Buckingham. Did this work out any differently than you thought it would work out? And did they wrap it up in a way that after the season was supposed to be about the opera wars, did it, you know, quench your thirst? Did it did it satisfy? Were they good calories versus the empty calories we get sometimes? I think they did a good job with holding on to the suspense about where was the Duke going to end up. And we were very certain it was going to look one way. And then it was like, no, it looks like it's going to go the other way. But they did a great job of like hanging us on there a little bit, wondering what was going to happen. And there were still other things happening. So the Opera Wars were very, very important in this episode. But there was other things happening. So it was sort of like you kept your eye on the Opera Wars, but it wasn't the only thing we were talking about, which I think was actually important because that it allowed that to like stay more tension filled. I think if we had just an episode where we were just focused on that, it could have gotten thin, you know, where we were like, okay, all right, just get there already. But because they kind of kept it in its own category and other things were happening, it was like it made sure that it stayed kind of nerve wracking for us about what was going to happen. And they actually used the opera wars in this episode, just to continue your thought and add on to it, as a backdrop to expand on other characters' storylines that have nothing to do with the opera wars. Uh, because the world building that they had done, that all of society was so consumed by the opera wars by this point and were you going to the you were going somewhere you were either go even agnes was leaving the house you were either going to the academy or you were going to the met but if you were in society remotely you were doing something on october 22nd that backdrop affected or played into a lot of the characters like let's get to our very first clip this episode's going to be uh very heavy on clips as a way of going through the narrative of the episode uh this one i call ward treason I should go too. <laughs> Thank you for seeing John. And please give my regards to your mother. I will. I gather she's lost her duke. Well, Agnes thinks I'm very feeble. Because Mrs. Astor talked him around. I was told it was Mr. McAllister who arranged the switch. He did the persuading. Mr. McAllister, my mother's friend. Well, she never guessed that. I hope we'll see you at the opening night. I'd love it, but I'm afraid not. As you know, Aunt Agnes is very much on the other side in the war. <laughs> I meant for you to join us. Oh. <laughs> I'm not sure I dare. You underestimate yourself, Miss Brooke. 
Now let's get to the ward in a second. But first, let's start with Marion. Marion has never been one to really dabble in the gossip of high society. I saw this as an interesting and refreshing change for her, or maybe an evolution in her, that she was actively dipping her toe in the goings-on. It almost feels like maybe she really has arrived by this point. There definitely was growth in the character throughout this season where I felt like she was being like a little more casual in her responses to Aunt Agnes. There was moments where she was a little bit more sharp with her wit, and that was coming across like she is more comfortable in her own skin. She is ready to speak up. She is ready to actually kind of stand on her own two feet. And and part of that is being a part of all of these other conversations. She's no longer just like stuck with like what's going on in her, in her own household, in her own mind even. She's expanded. I mean, obviously, we've had her expand this role into becoming a teacher and getting out more into society. She's talking a ton more with, with Larry across the street. We have like loads of stuff going on for her that's not so just isolated as I felt like she was in season one where she was so just kept in a little box you know like we don't want her to be doing too much or interacting with too many things but now I mean she has a lot more glimpse on what's going on bigger picture right and participating it though versus just being someone on the sidelines quipping at it or judging it which I think she spent a lot of season one that was kind of her vibe in season one was she was such an outsider her involvement with high society was very judgy or uh very uh, that's not my deal yeah I would say like even like naive like she kind of she just she didn't really know the way it worked so she kind of just watched but see now I think not only does she have like a seat at the table but she has something to say when she's at the table and that's fresh because a lot of times she was just listening or she would be like and Agnes or or whatever she you know just like sort of a one line kind of a comment out of her but now she has a much better view teaching at the school I mean think about it we've had two different engagements for her now she's not just like commenting on society she is a part of society and and that was like definitely a warning to her like hey you are a part of this and you have two strikes against you and people are more now paying attention to you so you got to like think about what you're doing right and this clip also important for the larian stance out there being invited into the box maybe marion doesn't appreciate it in this very moment but i'm sure she does when she arrives at the met if she didn't think on it beforehand that is the golden ticket to be in the russell box at the met on opening night there's the four russells the duke the two fanes and marion that's it that is an exclusive box that she is being invited into, which is significant for her, but also significant for Larry. Think think to Gladys and Billy Carlton in this episode. She the Carltons can't even Billy Carlton can't even get to the supper invite for postmet, let alone being visited in the box. And here Marion is she's being that that invite is being vetted through Bertha, even if we don't see it on screen. She had to bless that that was okay for him to do and or renege on it at some point if she had an issue with it. Maybe maybe not because it's he's the boy, but mm, I think Bertha has a very tight grip on who is going to be sitting in her box on opening night at the Metropolitan. That's giving Marion a blessing of being someone worthy to be seen with her son in society. Which is such a big deal that I am kind of surprised that there wasn't more of a of a moment made of that because you're 100% right. Yeah, I mean, Larry is the boy of the family, but at the same time, I mean, there was plenty to be said about who other people that he had been hanging around with, you know, other women. So I am actually a little surprised, but 
clearly, you know, Bertha was fine with it because she would have absolutely said something and and kept that under control. She wanted that box to be very, very handled, if you will. Even if we didn't see it on screen, I, I can't imagine she didn't bless it by not saying, no, you can't take Marion Brooke uh, to, to the Met opening. Uh, let's get to the ward of it all. One, it was very funny. Ward McAllister. Yes, Larry. How many Ward McAllister? How many McAllisters <laughs> do you think your mother knows? But Ward has walked this line for two seasons now and never more so than this season. We have talked about it several times about his role in being a consigliere to Bertha, but also being perched on the shoulder of Mrs. Astor. And would it ever blow up in his face? Now, this lays the groundwork for this next clip that I'm calling Ward Woodshed. Let's take a listen and talk about where Ward stands here. You came. I received your summons. Of course I came. I wanted to hear your explanation. Because the Duke has changed sides. I rather thought it was you who had changed sides. Larry told me it was you who talked him round. I spoke to him, yes. How sad. Foolishly, perhaps, I believed you were my friend. I am your friend. But I am also Mrs. Astor's friend, and that is what I am known for. (laughs) Did he make matters easy? The Duke is in a difficult spot. Difficult to live, perhaps, but not to understand. He has a high position, great estates, fine titles, a castle in Devon and a palace in London, but not enough money to keep it all going. An accurate summation. So, how much did he cost? There's no point in that. Why? She's giving him more than money. She'll open New York for him. She's opening America. He wants to know these people, and she can give them to him more than you can. So he will get what he wants. Her opening will be a triumph, and you will accept a box at the Academy. You're very sure of yourself. With respect, Mrs. Russell, I've been at this game rather longer than you. I think the most interesting part of that clip was how unapologetic Ward was when he was finally kind of called on the carpet for his bullshit. He made no apologies. He's like, this is who I am. And you've always known that. Were you surprised at his tone? He he takes a very, you know, disciplined daddy kind of voice with her towards the end of it. And in a way, I don't think we've ever heard him speak to her. And I think she maybe is a little taken aback by it. I think that some of this groundwork was laid, like, think about the way that Bertha was speaking to Mrs. Astor at the meeting in front of everybody. There's this way that they can speak that is very frank and very matter of fact that somehow we hide again behind the manners and manage to say things like, oh, well, certainly you already had thought about this, but this is what happened. There's all these different ways that they kind of zig and zags as to like not ruffle feathers, but they're still saying the blunt facts. And everything that Ward says is exactly who Ward has been this entire time. So I'm with him in terms of like both Mrs. Astor and Bertha know who Ward is and know what Ward is 
is doing. So like stop feigning any amount of shock that that he would be behind the scenes. Of course, he's going to be behind the scenes. And you know what? I, I give him credit for just owning it and just saying like, yeah, I, I think that he would be a crappy character if he was like a weasel and was like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, I didn't do anything like that would suck. I like yeah, it he so would be really much better. hard to root for if that's yes. how he was. And yeah. Nathan Lane as like a person, he has the chops to deliver it in a way that he has a smile on his face, but the words are very cutting and is like, you know, could put you back in line. I think one of the things that uh, that struck me about it was how non-wishy-washy aside he had been we all season we, when he was with mrs astor he was you know the you, your plan can't fail and then you know you're gonna win and with mrs uh, you know with bertha with miss russell it was very you know you you've got the tide and society is coming to your to your feet and it's your time and here he's telling bertha you have lost at this point, I am looking in my crystal ball of of making guesses, and you you've lost. You can't get the Duke back. That's very unlike Ward in how we have seen him to be so definitive with still so much relative time left on the clock. I think Ward, to his detriment, underestimates Bertha, which is something he had been good about not doing, and I think he does it here. While tipping her off, that money wasn't going to be the answer to getting the Duke back, which Bertha, I think, doesn't quite really realize until her conversation with George, which follows right after this, where George makes it clear to her again, restating what Ward said, it's not about money, it's about the X Factor. And and what Mrs. Astor can promise the Duke in X Factor is America. So, Bertha, what can you promise the Duke in X Factor? Well, I think we find that out, or it's hinted very greatly at the end of the episode. Um, but, but really interesting Ward interaction there, especially since Ward then does go to the Academy and 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 sits, you know, with Mrs. Astor and, you know, he ends up giving the eulogy, which we're going to get to in a second. But before we get to the actual night of the opera, we got to talk about Mrs. Fish. Mamie Fish was on <laughs> fire in this episode. The last two episodes, I've loved Mrs. Fish so much. She's she's always great for for the one liners and for just just the whole her whole vibe is immaculate. But last episode, it was this is thrilling. Just how she would like pop her face in like stuff that stuff would be going on. And then all of a sudden you just see her face over someone's shoulder and you're like, Mrs. Fish. <laughs> this is really thrilling. It was so good. It was so good. I mean, Oscar was on the verge of suicide and she's like, oh, this is thrilling. Yeah, she's super saucy. I love it. I love her character. So we're going to play two Mamie clips here. This is early in episode and then towards the end of the episode, we'll play them back to back here. So, which is it to be? Mrs. Fish. Which what? The Tribune says he's going to the Met. The Times says he'll be at the Academy. The Herald says Academy. But the Sun says it's the Met. Trust you to read the Sun. Where else can I find all the divorces? He'll be at the Academy, and he's asked to make his own way there. He thinks to arrive with us would undermine his dignity. Isn't his dignity already a casualty of the arrangement? Are you sure you come? Because I could always go to the Met. Where I suppose you also have a boss. He'll come. He can't afford not to. Mrs. Fish, I can assure you the matter is settled. You will find the Duke at the Academy of Music. 
it was a very sick burn on her part. But also right. I mean, the the Duke is, is just fooling, you know, he's not fooling anyone with his, I want to arrive separately to preserve my dignity. But if I am Ward, and maybe this is the hubris though, right? If I'm Mrs. Astor and Ward... I think that's a red flag that he's not committing to going in their carriage, right? If you if you really oh, want to yeah. lock him up, you swing by and pick him up. Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, having you ever been in that same situation with a group of people who you don't really want to hang with and you're like, I'll drive separately. I, like, am, <laughs> I am literally doing it next Tuesday. I am literally totally, doing that next Tuesday. It's totally how it works. And so I get it 100%. But you're right that that should have given at least some big, bright, yellowy, orange flags to Mrs. Astor that like, mm, I wish she would like drive with us. Like we should have made that like part of the agreement. But, you know, we know the Duke is going to leave himself open to any opportunities that could come even at the last minute. Right. Negotiation is always on the table. What happened to Mrs. Astor's threat of if you have a box at the Academy and take a box at the Met, you forfeit your box at the Academy? They Remember she introduced that and wanted oh, yeah. Agnes to spread that as like a side thing that she herself couldn't say directly because she's on the board of the Academy? we're just not enforcing that. I mean, she's clearly, I mean, maybe is, uh, is, is just in her face saying I can go, I can go to the Met. So that's why y'all right. need to tell me now, because I need to know where my carriage is going to go. I think that that threat would have to be enforced after the first night, because you have to see where people fall. So you can't, you can't take away their boxes before the opening night, because otherwise, like you are, you are making sure no one comes. So you have to leave everybody have their boxes for opening night with the intent that everyone's going to show up on your side. Then and after that, if you decide that somehow you're going to take their box, I think that that would be the time. But but to what end? Like, so you're going to take their box and what? I have no one sit there. I mean, because that's what's happening. Uh, live with your righteousness, I believe, is the answer to that question. <laughs> Righteous in your empty auditorium. Man, yeah. could you imagine being the performers on the night of the Academy? No. I, mean, I mean, maybe Mamie sums it up perfectly. Here is a Mamie supercut from the end of the episode. She is all of us when we see the dire state of the Academy on opening night. Oh, there's Mrs. Fish. Ah, oh, Mamie, you came. Is this it? Really? Is this the turnout? Look, some of them are leaving. It makes us appreciate your loyalty all the more. But does it make it all the more ridiculous? Goodbye, ladies. Mr. McAllister. Where are you going? Where do you think? But I'll have to hurry if I'm to get there before I miss too much. Should I help find her carriage? I didn't think you were coming. I wasn't. But the Academy was a morgue. The fact is, you've won. It can be a mistake to celebrate too soon. <laughs> oh, my dear. American society has been reinvented tonight, and you are at the very heart of it. I mean, Mamie speaks for all of us. Right? Mamie crowned Bertha, queen of the opera. Mamie took... <laughs> Mamie, Mamie showed up at the Academy with her poor old husband and was like, no, 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 
Nope, we're bouncing. Have you ever been there? Okay, I I have been there recently where like there was like a Halloween thing and I was like, we we're walking out to it and I was like, oh, nope, nope, nope. Like I was like backing up once I realized there's like three people sitting out here and this is not what I thought it was going to be like real quick. I was like backtracking, backtracking. I was maybe fishing all over that place. Like I was and like, oh, no, 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 In the carriage and went to the Met. You hear her start before she even yeah. comes into the scene. I love that in the, in the audio clip. You can hear her saying, oh, oh, got to hurry. Hurry. Like you could hear her coming into the into her box before you even see her. It's it's wonderful. She's, She's amazing. Just, just killing it. Just killing it on all fronts. And, you know, New York society has been transformed tonight and you are at the center of it. That is a pronouncement. And Mamie Fish, not the central box, but she's only sitting two boxes over. She's got a really important box. Ashley Atkinson, we are we are looking at you because I feel like you are bringing Mamie Fish alive for us, and I am loving it. She is so funny and cool. <laughs> she is a good time. If you've ever watched any of her interviews, she is a hoot and a holler, the actor, on top of the character she plays. So uh, let's get to Turner. This is the other aspect that showed up, which really, I got to tell you, I'm kind of done with the Turner thing. I need the Winter Tints just to kind of be not a storyline anymore, and it seems like it is going to continue into next season based on the faces, the stink faces that Mrs. Winterton's giving in this episode. Let's drop in and listen to Mrs. Winterton learn she does not have the central box. Wait a minute, haven't we come too far along? No, it's just here. You've tricked me. Mrs. Winterton, it is a box on the first tier, just as you wanted. Now, you must excuse me. Please, enjoy your evening. We were to have the central box. We were to have Mrs. Russell's box. She's made a fool of me. If she has, don't make it worse. I'm leaving. No, you need to be part of this event. And you don't want to show Mrs. Russell has defeated you, so sit down. And look as if it's all just as you planned. Very well. But I won't forget it. I love the comment out of her husband because that's exactly what I would say in a situation like that. I'd be like, sit down and pretend like this is exactly how you always wanted it. Like, that is exactly the advice I would give. Like, we will deal with this later, but do not do anything now. I am with you on that. Mrs. Winterton has kind of been played out at this point for me. Like, everything's been been said. Like, her, her story has been given up to Mrs. Astor. We find out who did that in this episode, which was exciting. And then, you know, of course the entire fight between Bertha and George, like it's already come and gone. So what she tried to do to like create havoc for the for the Russell household, she's already done. It's done now. And everyone, including the staff, knows to be wary of her. So it's like she doesn't have any cover anymore to try to like pull anything. Mr. Winterton doesn't want to rock the boat anymore. He's already had to live through being, he actually did get thrown out of the academy. How many waves is he going to want to make? I mean, he he doesn't seem overly concerned with society, but, uh, you know, when Mrs. Astor calls, he still comes to her. So he clearly doesn't want to be blackballed either. So how many waves is he going to allow to be made? And really, what is what is what is Enid going to do in that situation? She's going to make a scene at the opening of the Met? Like, like that's going to be reported well on her you know uh mid yeah. middling high society wife makes scene at met uh, 
And for no reason, like this is not the story, you know, like and again, she was a great plot device to create some division between Bertha and George, which, you know, every good story needs a moment where where your main power couple has some doubts about each other and, and have to come back together. But we've done all that. Like, I think we've done a great job. And, and I think that the series has done a really good job of laying the groundwork in season one and then letting it play out in season two, because a lot of people didn't see her coming back and didn't see how this was going to happen so awesome way to use her and in, in all the different facets and not only busting things with george and bertha but then bringing it to a societal level and having you know she thinks having some sort of finger in this pot of you know who is going to be the big winner of the opera wars but in reality she was just a distraction like she really did not end up playing any big role in this she played her role. She caused the the only significant uh, dissension in the Russell marriage, a marriage that we that we didn't think could have dissension in it. And she was the cause of that. That was her role. Bertha and George together overcame her. She was thoroughly beaten. Like, here's a video game analogy, because I know the crossover between Gilded Age and video games is great. You know, as you progress through the video game, you fight your little bosses, your middle bosses and your big bosses. Once you defeat the middle boss or a little boss, they don't come back typically. They're defeated. You move on from then and you continue looking forward to what the next big challenge is. Mrs. Turner was never more than a middle or little boss. Bertha has soundly defeated her at this point. There's no reason for the storyline to continue unless they can really reinvent it some way without retrotting the th same things that sh they've already covered. Like, she can't go find another better Duke or something right. like that. Like, what if she can't make a play for George? It didn't work the first time. It won't work now, you know? So and she can't infiltrate the staff. Like, we've already tried to do that to try to wreak havoc. So, I mean, she really has no other ways to go here. Plus, she has a real really good box she's only two to she's got the same box to their stage left that Mamie Fish has to stage right you know if you're them if well if you're you know if you're Bertha sitting in the box like that's a really good box it's a better view than most of the people at the Met what are you complaining about you look important in that box that is the most important the Wintertons you know Jay Gould if you, I, I have a map of the boxes from the uh when the, from the early years of the of the Met Jay Gould's box was like at the end of the horseshoe basically on the stage horrible view mrs winterton is sitting there really pretty like with a great view with her little dress with the flowers emblazoned upon it she's got nothing left to complain about <laughs> i'm happy if she just kind of melts into the background at this point that would be fine i could see where anytime there's going to be like a little a little thread to be pulled i could see that they could use enid as like just sort of the dennis the menace who's like constantly in the background looking to like pull at things and cause more problems for bertha just because she feels scorned by the whole situation, even though you're right, she could just look at like, hey, you were successful. You did what you wanted to do. You you climbed the ladder. You're married into society and you're doing just fine. She could just settle in. I don't think that that's going to be her fate, but I am OK with them leaving that storyline be for a while. 
you mentioned it already, but let's talk, let's circle back to it really quickly. Were you surprised that not that Bertha wrote to Mrs. Astor anonymously and gave up the goods on Enid, but that the show like tied that bow up for us? I didn't think we were going to actually get an answer on that. I mean, I was happy with it because I, I, I had, I had decided in my head that it was Bertha somehow that gave her up. So I, I was happy to find out that, you know, that was actually what happened. And you know what? I like that Bertha took a little satisfaction in the, in the, death glances she was getting and the pouting she was getting from Mrs. Turner. Bertha was entitled to that for for the discord that she sowed in her life this season. Uh, but I, were you surprised that the show actually went in grand scheme of things that they took time now to tie it up? Yeah, that I feel like that is Lord Fellow's uh, bag is like he he knows where to just slide like a one liner in there that makes you go, oh, my God, that's what happened. I think it was very smart of Bertha to take the reins and just take control of her own information. Like if someone is going to tell Mrs. Astor this, I want to know when and where and how. So I'm going to be the one that does it. And that way, you know, now she knows and now it's out there and now there's nothing hanging over the Russell's head. Here's my fan fiction ad onto this it was in her drawing room and she had church or mrs bruce sitting there writing the letter that she was dictating so that the handwriting could not be traced back to bertha i like that but i was actually thinking about like the delivery of it and all that stuff i was thinking like who would have delivered that letter for her that she would have trusted but then also not be tied back to her got russell money she was probably using cutouts she was probably hiring you know different like delivery services and stuff maybe who knows? I, but but I did stop and think about that. That one line did make me think all the things you were thinking about who would be the handwriting and how would she have gotten it there and all that. But you know what? I didn't need to know. And I congratulate the show for knowing times when they don't have to show us how the sausage was made. Like they can give us the one line that it was Bertha behind it. And then we can come up with like, well, how do we think she got the note there? And how did she keep anyone from knowing it was her? And that's fun. And I think that that's what makes the show a great show to talk about because we can sort of guess about those things. And a great callback too. the best callbacks in, in anything are when you have just forgotten about it and then the show comes back to it. I don't think anyone had thought about, you know, who did in, in weeks, who did write the, to Mrs. Astor to tell her about uh, Mrs. Turner? It, we, we weren't actively thinking about it by the finale, by the time the lights are about to dim and and the and the the opera is about to begin, Faust is about to begin, and we learn this little nugget of information. What a great little callback. Totally out of left field. I love it. I love it. I'm a total fan of it. Over at the Academy, as the lights dim, Ward gives the eulogy for the Academy. I don't understand. It seems they believe Mrs. Russell. Not us. But he's coming. I know it. I won't believe she's fine. I can't believe it. This is what defeat feels like. Leah, don't say that. The Metropolitan is a novelty. They're simply curious. Ladies, I know it's hard, but it's time to face the truth. To quote Ecclesiastes, for everything in life, there is a season. And it seems the season of the Academy of Music is drawing to a close. 
the lights literally dim as he says those words and the academy you know just so well done that was that was a mega that was a mega clip of uh mrs astor at the academy over the course of the night as she goes from i won't believe it he's coming to (sighs) (laughs) it was very cinematic i thought that that whole portion felt like we were in like a very high budget film and we were watching this like culmination of everything happening and it was like oh my god like like it it was poignant what he was saying like ladies like this is it like you've lost you know and i you know again there's something about if you can say something in a mannerly way, everybody doesn't have any right to get angry at you because there's a lot of stuff that Ward says that if you said it with a little more sarcasm or a little bit nasty, like people would get ruffled. But when he says it matter of factly, you're like, can't argue with them. You know, this these are the facts. I mean, you can't argue with Ecclesiastes. If it was good enough for Wren in Footloose, it's good enough for Ward McAllister in the Gilded Age. <laughs> That's our standard. That is the standard by which <laughs> I get footloose. I don't know about you. <laughs> Got it. I kept thinking to myself every time they went back to the Academy, the one that I really felt bad for, besides Oscar, because he really didn't want to be there at all. But it was Carrie Astor. This young lady, she probably just wants to be with Gladys and all of her highfalutin friends. who You know they're all at the Met. And she is just quietly sitting there. She doesn't say a peep the entire night. She just has to keep her head down. She, I mean, can you imagine the FOMO? If FOMO was a phrase that existed in 1883, the FOMO she must be feeling at that moment. Poor Carrie Astor. A poor Carrie Astor, but also uh, I like that when we find out what Bertha has done to get the Duke, actually, I'm not so much poor Carrie Astor. I'm a lot more like your mom watches out for you even more than than most. And I I actually felt like she was a little bit more taken care of than, say, old Gladys. So I wasn't feeling sorry for her. I was actually feeling like, girl, you don't know what's happening over at the Met. Yeah, we're going to get into You should be so yeah. glad as to not be there. We're, we're going to talk about Gladys in a couple of minutes. Let's finish off her mother, though, because we haven't even gotten to Bertha's crowning achievement when she finds out via George that she does have the central box. And then she walks in and she takes the first look around at not only the gorgeous view she has from the central box, but the fact that the entire place is full and that she has won. It's magnificent. I'm going to let this play. There's only words in the very beginning of it, but I'm going to let it play for a while because think back. It's it's very visual. Let this be your cue to go watch the scene again because the show's theme kicks up as she uh, as she gets into the box and she looks out for the first time and sees what she has done and how successful she's been. The show's theme kicks in in the scene. It's pretty breathtaking. So I'm going to let it play uh, for a little bit, even after George is done speaking. Can we wait a little bit longer? Have more faith in yourself, my dear. I certainly do. Wait a minute. This is wrong. I give up the central box. Don't give it another thought. Just go forward and claim your victory.
I mean, you said it a minute ago talking about the scenes at the Academy, but it was very cinematic. They really hit it out of the park with all of these scenes, the way it was shot, the way it was scored. The costuming, like the way oh, that, uh, yeah. like, I didn't I didn't necessarily love Bertha's dress when they were coming down the stairs in the Russell household. But that green against all of the red in the Met, it contrasted so much that it looked like a spotlight was on her. And that was an amazing use of costuming to make her be the center of, of everything of what was going on there. Shelby's colors may be blush and bashful, but the Mets' signature colors are red and gold and remain so today, but maybe also makes <laughs> Gladys's purple Muppet murder nightmare dress uh, stand out even more. It wasn't the dress. It was the headpiece that drove me crazy. Is on the headpiece part outfit. of the 19-foot fluffy train? Was um, that coming off of care. her head? It's, when she's seated, you don't even see that train. But when she's seated, that it was like a stick with like with like little fireworky things coming off the top. It was so distracting to me. And I'm sure it was absolutely time appropriate. It would have been the coolest thing that the girls were wearing. But there was something about it that came off like when you said Muppety. I mean, the Muppets that have like the little horn with like a little sprig of hair. <laughs> like that's kind of what it looked like. And I was like, Gladys, you seem so little and silly. And then of course, her actions of like waving over Billy and and acting so silly, like not really having any sense. I was like, I was so appreciating Bertha when she was like, show the Duke your program. Like, <laughs> I could hear both you and I saying that to any one of the kids to be like, now show your friend your program. <laughs> well, she's <laughs> waving across the box I after know. the opera has begun. What are you doing? doing well she should be more mannerly let's back it up in glass because gladys throws shade at the committee meeting earlier in the episode to aurora while billy carlton is standing there she makes some snide comment about about bertha that's to your mother's friend and to an adult what are you doing why are you why are you being you're being very rude and very immature and then in the box your wait the opera is going on you're sitting next to this dignitary that you know is important even if you're not into him you know he is important to your mother and to this whole situation. You are aware of what's gone on in order to get him here. And you're waving across five <laughs> boxes to the Carltons, who your mother has already said, knock she doesn't off. knock it off. <laughs> right. She's already said knock it off, Gladys, like more than once. Okay, here's the thing that I think is galling about Gladys. I think I have my finger on it. All right. Season one, she's begging, begging, begging to be an adult in society. We see her flounder as this child trying to transition into adulthood. And now in season two, she seems to be completely worn out about being an adult and about being pursued by men. We never got the happy in between. We never got the part where she was wowed by being an adult, wowed by all the attention, completely trying to follow the rules. It's like we got we got a version of, of Gladys now where she's already over it. She's already sick of being the center of attention. She's already tired of this whole thing. And as the audience, I'm like, girl, we never got to see you enjoy the attention and enjoy what was going on. Like it, it went from 
begging for it to being over it without the it happening. And that part feels like kind of like we got we got a little bit gypped on like, well, why didn't we get to see her having more more time when she was actively trying to enjoy it? I, I feel like it just fell out from under her real quick. And maybe that's all Bertha's doing. Maybe it's like she instantly made it no fun and had so many rules that basically Bertha was sorry what she wished for. Like, yeah, you got to be an adult. Now you don't get to hang out with your friends and fool around and do whatever. You know, now you're just stuck having to do all these these dances and dinners and everything, which apparently you're already sick of. You already think is boring. This is her regression this entire season, though. And we have talked about it. Basically, every time we've talked about Gladys, it's been the same thing. I almost want to apologize because we're not saying anything new she has acted equal parts not understanding what is expected of her now that she is out in society or she does and she acts like a it's a burden and b is extremely disrespectful of the process which you know maybe it's not for everyone but yes you're right she spent the entire first season begging for this to happen for, for haranguing her mother getting getting george to harangue her mother about bring her out bring her out well if you're going to get brought out then you're going to get sidled up with a guy that you probably don't want to be with that's what this is i don't understand what you thought this was gladys but sitting next to the much older duke who is single that's part of this job how do you not get that i don't know how bertha didn't take her out to the woodshed and beat her when she blew off the duke the day she met him remember when she walked into that room and there was a whole receiving yeah. line and she was like yeah peace she like you know bumped her chest gave him a peace sign and walked <laughs> off to her friends like yeah already so rude and so but you see what i mean about the we're missing the middle like we're yeah, missing i think the you're right though i think there was like, no middle i happened? i think like, she I think, went from because you know why it's because we have Marion right across the street where we just discussed like how she kind of sat back in season one observed judged criticized had her own opinions on stuff but now she's in it like she's in the it where she's dealing with engagement she's dealing with suitors she's dealing with this stuff there's still some excitement in her for like her future and what's coming next Gladys I don't know what her deal is exactly besides just her naivete but the way that she got from I don't know anything of what's expected to me, too. I'm so over this. And I've just been there's been a million men who want me. And I'm just so bored by yeah, it. But all. Remember, it was Larry like, had to what? Larry had to explain to her in the gardens. Remember, this right before the proposal. Larry has yeah. to explain to her. Yeah, that's what coming out in society means. Guys are just going to be kind of chasing your tail. Exactly. And you're not going to like most of them. How many times do you have to be sat next to the Duke before you start acting? Or at least, where's at least asking your mother being like, what's my expectation here with this Duke? I notice he keeps popping up everywhere and you keep putting me next to him. So that's where I'm going to give Gladys a little bit of leeway. It, I think in order to keep us as the audience in suspense of not knowing exactly why the Duke showed up, we couldn't have any conversations between Gladys and Bertha with her prepping Gladys in any way that she was needing to be the Duke's gal for the night or even more than that, we don't know. They couldn't do it. As a narrative, they couldn't show that to us. So we have to assume that it was all kept secret because there was no way that they could tell the audience, like, hey, guess what? She actually traded her kid. Well, like, fair, because, I mean, us. George specifically asked that question. We're going to yes. play this clip now. I, there's a couple things. One, is, listen to the beginning clip between the Duke and Gladys, because Gladys's face 
doesn't necessarily betray this, but listen to what Gladys says to the Duke. She straight up threatens him. You may not even notice this if you're just, if you're only kind of half paying attention. They're talking about what Faust is about. The Duke says what he thinks is about, and she, she ends it with a straight threat. Now, her, again, her face doesn't betray this, and it, it, she says it very kind of almost innocently as she looks forward after she's done talking, but it's a straight threat but then you have you cut back to agnes talking about what she may have offered what bertha may have offered the duke over what uh lena had and then you have george asking and being rebuffed by his wife about what she traded in order to get the duke there so let's take a listen to faust this is one of the most important clips i think of the episode as far as setting up next season gladys who are you waving at billy carlton in his mother's box May I ask him to come back with us for supper afterwards? No. Now, show the Duke, show Hector your program. Here. Although I guess you know the story of Faust. Of course. A man sells his soul to gain riches on this earth. And he looks to regret it. I hope he's properly ashamed of himself. She can't have just paid him more money. He swore an oath. And then he broke it. Perhaps she offered something more. How did you get the Duke to change his mind? I made Hector see it was in his interest. But how? George, you make the money and I'm very grateful. But I don't tell you what to do in Pittsburgh. And you must leave me to manage the rest. And he lived to regret it and that she, as she's looking at him in the eyes and then looks forward. Uh, mm, I, you're giving her too much credit. You're giving her too much credit. I think that she naively says that. She, I think she says it to her, doesn't even know that she is like saying the, the conclusion of the Duke's story. Because I honestly think she is this naive. I do not. She asked if Billy could come back to dinner. She she still doesn't get it. She does not get it. So when she says it, yes, it is it is like a delicious irony that she's the one that says that to him but i don't think she gets her own well, her joke. face definitely conveys it like she doesn't mean anything by it yeah but i don't think duke, she gets her own the information duke, the duke certainly takes a, a double look though so even <laughs> if she didn't mean it that way the duke certainly is like oh shit uh, you know, like, oh, th there seems to be a parable going on here. I, you know, it's interesting if you if you are a fan of the way television narrative works, when when Agnes says maybe he offered something more than money and then the camera opens on a very tight shot of Gladys's face. That's the show signaling the thing that was offered just yeah. in case you've not watched <laughs> TV before or in case you're doing laundry or you're doing something else, because I know we always have to give our listeners a little bit of an out that like hey we get it you're not taking notes the way we are you're walking through the room you're talking to kids you're dealing with the dog whatever you're doing you may have missed that the camera swung right to gladys's face again though gladys is still in this place where she does not understand she seems to not understand her worth but also doesn't understand like the precarious nature of her status like i don't think she gets either side of this 
what is your guess about George? Because George is not naive and George does understand his wife and his and George is looking over at the Duke and his daughter. Very, very tricky situation when uh, Bertha shuts him down. You make the money and I'm grateful, but I don't tell you what to do in Pittsburgh. You don't ask me what's happening, how I get the Duke here. George isn't going to be satisfied with that. And George has made explicit promises to his daughter to support her against her mother in a love match situation. Very tricky situation they have there lining up here for season three. Maybe there will be more discord that has nothing to do with Mrs. Turner in season three. Definitely. A hundred percent. There's going to be some ruffled feathers between Bertha and George because you're right. George has made this more than clear to Gladys that he is looking for a love connection here. He does not want this set up just for financial gains, which on one hand, maybe as the father who is bringing in the money in this case, maybe the finances aren't as important really to him because he's because he's always had the attitude of like, I can make more money where I feel like Bertha has more of the attitude of like managing what we already have. There's more of a push for her to like keep the money they have and and to keep building it. But do you not understand what I'm saying? Like George is a little bit more like, well, I could just make another business deal and I can make more money that way. She doesn't need to marry somebody else. But the cards that Bertha has to play is who I marry my children to is how I bring money into this house. So she's kind of playing a different game. I, I think I, I think the motive is different. I don't think it's how I bring more money into this house. Well, and status. Well, the stat, but that's different, though, because yeah, even in the conversation with Ward, she makes clear. And this is important, though, because this is the whole dollar princess British mm-hmm. royal program that was going on in the late 1800s into the early 1900s, of which they seem to be following the Alva Vanderbilt and her daughter Consuela, uh, Consuelo Vanderbilt, who was married off to the Duke of Marlborough. Alva has always been kind of a leading figure that Bertha would be based on. Not It's not a one-to-one ratio, but she's larger, she is drawn heavily from Alva Vanderbilt, who eventually did take over high society. And she did marry her daughter, Consuelo Vanderbilt, to the Duke. It was a very short-lived marriage, actually, it, and it was miserable. And Consuelo, Consuelo was crying up in her room and had to be, like, brought down to the altar to get married. So upset was she being forced into her marriage. And the idea was that the British royalty had no money, but they had everything else. High status, titles, they had prestige, but they had no money. So the new rich Americans married their daughters because they paid large dowries so this is this is actually the the family in Downton Abbey it's an american wife and a british earl because and she was a dollar princess which actually is happening at about the same time as when this is taking place uh the story of Downton Abbey is actually starting to unfold overseas so it's interesting if we're going to get crossover between those the idea is george george is going to be paying a large money to the duke in order to marry his daughter they're bringing the money bertha is assuring status for her family that's what she's doing she's she is shoring up george's money with status and which with it will bring credibility and belonging that you know even the old money stalwarts can't continue to uh snub them at 
So we're saying the same thing. I just didn't finish that sentence. What I'm saying is that it is Bertha's job to maintain the money that George brings in. And also that includes by making these connections for the family, which that, of course, brings the status and brings everything else, all these various connections. But you can see where they would have a different approach to that because Bertha is about taking the money we already have and working with it, manipulating it into making more. Whereas George can have the attitude of like, I can make more money like he's not willing to just sell off his children for well, this status, status and for this stuff. right 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 that's what i'm saying he doesn't he doesn't need to do that but you can see where they're coming at it from two different ways because she is the manager of the money and he's the maker of the money but this is different this is why they would come at it differently and why she would look at her children as basically you know uh, goods <laughs> to be traded in order for her to maintain their wealth and and explode their status into the society that they want to be in at a higher level people may ask why uh, you know mrs astor had a daughter she had carrie she actually had several children why didn't she think to make the same offer on top of opening up america uh, with her daughter i'm pretty sure at least in the real story of this i think carrie astor was if not engaged she was already kind of betrothed and in a significant relationship with a gentleman at this time though lena did have some, a couple of other daughters i believe but i think she didn't have the same weapons available to her of the young nubile daughter necessarily that bertha did ready to sell so but it's interesting though that the duke is going to take the the russell money and a wife over all of america being opened right Th these are the choices that we're talking about being open to the, the the which path do you take do you take all of america being available to you which maybe leads to a match or leads to business dealings or something or do you take the sure fire uber rich and a wife you know, call that a, a good deal struck. I, I think if you're the Duke, maybe you'd take that. The, I feel like the Russell money maybe feels like a sure bet than the promise of what America, uh, you know, as an amorphous concept may may represent for him as far as uh, bringing money back home. And in a weird way, I kind of feel like it's actually like with less strings attached, even though I know there's just as many societal strings attached and money and all that kind of stuff. It feels like when you get in bed with the Astors, like, you never get to have an opinion the rest of your life. Like, you just have to fall in line behind Lena and do everything she says. Like, look at Ward. Look at look at her daughter. Look at everybody. Everybody just kind of has to, like, bend to the whim of Mrs. Astor. If that does not appeal to you, if you'd rather be called Hector and rather be seated, you know, right next to Bertha and be joking and laughing and all this kind of stuff, that you're not getting joking and laughing with the Astor household. You know, like, you are getting, like, pomp and circumstance and, and obligations. But I do think that that the youth of Bertha and George's household and 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 their newness also like it actually leaves even more room for the D, for the duke to exert some authority or like actually say what he wants to happen as opposed to being bought when when Ward said he took an oath <laughs> I thought what this is what it's like to be in the Astor household isn't it you have to take an oath Swan that you do which things. he broke but uh, okay. think about that, Mike. Like, that's not the kind of talk we hear out of Bertha and George. Like, we're like that is some old school thinking that people are going to take an oath and like that's somehow like now you have them. 
it's just antiquated thinking. And I, and I can see where for the for the Duke, it would be way more interesting to be a part of this newer, younger, like who knows what they what doors they're opening over here. But I like the cut of their jib better than I like having to deal with just this wicked, stodgy, old rules, everything. Just a little history corner here about the Duke. When uh, Bertha goes to visit him where the deal is struck off screen, right? We only see him, we only see her arrive at his door. So where he's staying is actually the Union League Club. The Union League Club uh, is a private social club in New York City. It was founded in 1863 in official affiliation with the Union League, which was a series of clubs in different states born out of the Civil War war and wanting to have a men's league that was very patriotic and really rebuffed any kind of confederate uh, membership it was a splinter group of a group that preceded it that had some confederate members in it and so this was it was by 1863 they were just like no enough it has to be an american club no confederacy so the union league is born then the union league club in new york is founded in 1863 it's on its fourth building currently. It actually still exists as of today. Where they are now at this time is its third clubhouse, which was located on 39th and 5th, Ave- 5th Avenue. That clubhouse building opened up in 1881. It was their third building. It was a men's club. It was very exclusive. It's still considered one of the most prestigious social clubs in the country. It did not admit women until 1986. And then it has admitted several. And then I think in the early 2000s, it actually finally even had a woman president. Ooh. But the funny thing is the Duke is staying at 39th and 5th at the Union League Club. The Met was located at 39th and Broadway. Now, the avenues, when you're crossing avenue to avenue, so you're going 5th down to Broadway, those are very long streets in Manhattan, if you've never been. But he's only going two blocks to the Met. Obviously, he was going to go there. It was such a short trip. He didn't even need to be in the carriage, even though there was a lot of carriage looking. He was right there. I think the only person that we haven't talked about in the central box, and before we move off of the opera wars for good and for finished for this season anyway, is Aurora Fane. Uh, we learned early in the episode that Charles really wants to go to the Met, but Aurora is still hemming and hawing. And Bertha, by the way, being really gracious about the hemming and hawing, you know, and and Aurora talks about how she's really just terrified of Mrs. Astor. This is kind of like Jack the Inventor and the Clock, uh, the whole Aurora Fane storyline. I love... I love the Fanes. I've I've already pitched several times this season that I want them to have their spinoff of like the life and times where only good things happen to Charles and Aurora Fane. But I don't know. This is it's an interesting storyline again in in a show where minutes are precious and screen time is precious. Did you get bang for your buck? Did you feel growth coming off of Aurora that she ended up being braver than she thought she could be by going to the Met and sport and spurning? Uh, Mrs. Astor by not going to the Academy where even though she admits that she's kind of deathly afraid of Mrs. Astor? Hmm, I don't know. I don't know if I can give her like that much growth out of this. I mean, I feel like the writing was on the wall. And especially if you were like in the room at some of those meetings, I feel like you would know that that the Met was going to turn out to be the winner here because we have to assume that Aurora is having conversations that we're not privy to with other friends and, you know, other people that were all filling up the Met. So she probably had a pretty good idea of where everyone was heading, even if Bertha didn't know. And I think she just wanted to be, you know, hanging out with the winning horse that night but i agree that the fact that she has stated more than once that she is afraid of mrs astor i do think that we should expect some big 
backlash from this because she has stated and said to the audience, I am afraid. This is a character to be afraid of. Well, she says she says straight in this episode, I am not a brave person. She says that in the beginning of this episode. Which is kind of why there's not a feigned spinoff because she wouldn't go do anything. <laughs> there would be nothing to watch. She's getting brave now. We're she watching is. the braveness. But is it brave to go to where you know everyone else is going? Going, I mean, to, going to the I hottest ticket in the central box? I don't know yeah, how brave I don't know that if that's is. Very brave. Right? I mean, that seems like a sure thing. So I like Aurora, and I and this entire season, I think that both of us have been like, yeah, I like the Fanes, and I like where Aurora like comes into play. I don't think that she's shown all this growth this season. I look forward to her showing some more growth in the next season. But I like that she's around more often. I think that there I think there's something to that that feels like, okay, as we know, the dynamic of the Van Ryan household is changing and has changed. I think that Aurora could play a bigger role there within her bigger family, extended family. Just a little plug for Kelly O'Hara, who plays Aurora Fane. She's currently on Broadway, actually. You can go catch her into in Days of Wine and Roses if you're going to be in Manhattan anytime soon. I think it's a limited engagement run, um, but you can go check her out there. I think the more interesting thing about Aurora, and maybe, again, this is maybe headcanon. This is me just making up my own kind of backstory. Maybe she's not so keen on being so close to Mrs. Astor because she doesn't maybe want to be so close to Agnes Van Ryn right now. We still haven't seen the shoe drop for her role in introducing Maud Beaton into Oscar's life. Again, she was the matchmaker there. It was very much explicitly and expressly stated several times Aurora who brought Maud into their lives and specifically into Oscar's life specifically as a matchmaking situation. That can't just be dropped. Not as far as Agnes is concerned. I can't imagine that that's going to go without punishment for very long. Oh, you think? I, th I think narratively it's interesting. I think, it, I think it would be bizarre for Agnes not to throw some shade at Aurora for even if she knows her anger really lies with Oscar. I, there's some collateral damage there. I think there's potential for collateral damage. I don't actually don't see it. Because of the way that our story is written, we don't double back on stories. So I feel like this is one of those things where it would have to come up in another situation. Like if she was going to set Oscar up in another in another situation, I could see then where maybe there'd be like a, well, and we better double check this one, like something like that. But unless we have a situation like that, I do not see Agnes going back, especially the way that this all wraps up. If it did not come to a nice, neat, tidy conclusion as it is, maybe Aurora's on the chopping block. But because it does, and because at the end of the day, Agnes holds up Oscar and his lack of due diligence. Yes, it was Maude Beaton, but it was Oscar handing over the money. Money, you know, I don't know. I don't see it just because I don't I don't see them lashing out at that level of character where she's at. You know, she's like she's a rung out from Agnes in a way that I just don't see if it was Marion or if it was Aunt Ada. Oh, yeah. All day long. They'd get beat up, but but not Aurora. She's too far out. Let's get back to Marion, because I think Larry and Marion were ended up being one of the really big story takeaways from there. I mean, I think everyone's happy for Bertha. I don't think anyone is terribly surprised at, at how this story played out. One, because it's actual known history. We know that within three years, the Academy is not even doing operas anymore. It becomes a vaudeville house for 40 years before it finally shudders. Like, the history tells us that. So, yes, it was great to see. And we got the big sweeping shot 
shots and and the cinematography was cinematic and it was gorgeous, but not a big surprise that Bertha wins the Opera War. Very happy for it, though. I obviously ate a storyline at the end of the episode, which we're going to talk about last because, I mean, how can we not talk about it last? The whole Larian train really picked up steam this season, especially in light of Marion and Dashiell the 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 Larian stands really, really, really became more and more vocal. So there's a lot of movement on that in this episode, beginning with Larry inviting Marion to the Met to sit in the Russell box, a very exclusive invitation. We get Marion, who goes through a whole journey in this episode, and we're going to talk about her and Dashiell after we talk about her and Larry, but we get this clip towards the end, right before they go into their box. I hope after tonight, Mother will calm down. What if she loses? Win or lose, she's got to be less mad than she's been lately. Your mother knows what she wants, and perhaps that's the trick of getting it. You're very philosophical tonight. I was reminded of something Autagnus said to me. And we're going to play that clip in a little while when we're talking about her and Dashiell. But basically, Agnes had said to her, life goes fast. Don't waste your life. You have to, you have to you know, get out there and live your life. But also remember, you have two strikes against you. So Marion finds herself in a precarious spot as this uh, season is coming to a close. I played this clip really because it, for me, it was a nice bookend because here we are at the end of season two and you have Marion, Larry and Gladys standing around in a birth of function, talking to each other. I believe it's the end of episode one, way back in the first season, the very end of the very first episode, you have Marion, Larry, and Gladys standing around talking at a Bertha function at the end of that episode, where they promised to kind of always be friends and 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 warriors together. So for me, it was like a nice little bookend. Because remember, we didn't know as this as this episode's wrapping up, we don't know that the show is coming back. So if it hadn't, this ends up being a nice little bookend moment with these three young characters who are really the three young central characters of the show kind of standing together and still still being a unit together. So that actually struck me first. But then when I listened to her words, you see the wheels turning in Marion's head, uh, this idea of seizing control of her life. I feel like everyone has this moment at least once in their life. At some point, the idea of what am I doing? I need to take control of my life. I need to stop being just a character in my life and and become the central focus of my life, which is something that's going to be brought up in the Peggy storyline about finding a voice and being being the center central figure of your life and actually directing your life and controlling your life. Is that something you can relate with? I know, I know for sure it can be for me with my career and my life. I, I'm curious if if that kind of theme of taking control of your life kind of resonated with you and were you like Marion's age did it come later earlier I think that it was not at Marion's age I think that at her age I felt like I knew what I was doing uh that that awesome in your 20s completely invincible kind of feeling at that point that no every decision was right every decision was awesome um but I think as as you know, time goes by a little bit faster for our characters. Their life expectancy is not nearly as long as ours. So I do think that there's a bigger push and, and an earlier push on our characters to be like, hey, you've really got to figure it out. For one thing, because 
the marrying age like passes them by really, really quickly. Like they only have like a couple of years when everyone's like thinking, okay, you're like brand new on the scene and everyone's clamoring for you before you become like the old maid, you know, before you become the spinster pretty darn quick. Your moment in the sun is very short and you've got to take advantage of that. It's comical to me for how short a time we've known Marion that she has been engaged twice because she's probably the least romance pursuing character we have in the show like everybody else is looking for someone to love and she actually like isn't always like that isn't like her main focus she she's so much more focused on teaching this season Mm -hmm. and wanting to be with the kids and doing all this stuff that it's like it's kind of funny how it's just happening to her that part i can definitely relate to that feeling of like so the ball starts rolling and all of a sudden you're going and you look around you're like whoa did i sign up for this ride i don't know that i did which we see Marion have to put her foot down in this episode about what ride she accidentally got on. If anything, it's not so much that she needs to take control from the standpoint of like, I need to cast off all these things I've been doing. She needs to take control, like stop getting yourself into these situations and acting as if you didn't know it could happen. Like, If you're spending time with a man longer than X amount of time, whatever that is, and he's giving you rides places and he's he's coming over for dinner and stuff like that, you have to have your head on straight to say, whoops, I might get proposed to like I need to make my my stance very known so that I don't accidentally get get engaged at the gardens. You know, like I need to make sure that everyone knows where I stand. That's more where I see her like needing to get a backbone and I see her getting one of like. I need to be more clear. And even with Aunt Agnes, I mean, she did go to the Met. I mean, that's a really big deal that she went. She didn't let Aunt Agnes and Aunt Agnes didn't force her to go to the Academy. That that dynamic has changed a lot. And and I, I feel like, okay, now if you, she's kind of in that no man's land where if Agnes is not in control of your decisions and she doesn't seem to clearly understand how her interactions with men is going to land her with a proposal, it's like you've got to hurry up and catch up in that department because if Agnes isn't going to control it, you better control the situation better. That's where I see her like kind of grabbing the steering wheel a little bit more. Are you seeing like her actually having a better understanding or do you think it's just like she's been kind of blindsided twice now by men it's like it was bound she had to kind of understand what was happening i think she was actually pretty eyes open with dashiell i think because of the francis factor she got herself into a situation that she didn't know how to bail out of i think she saw the tracks had run out well ahead of that point i think she's i think she was just riding to her doom it was i think i think she understood it was a question of when not if Dashiell was going to propose and she was going to get backed into that corner because she knew she didn't love Dashiell that way. She, and she says it really well. I, we can get into Marion and Dashiell if you want, because every, everything you're saying with her and Agnes and, and her and her line, it really, really is, is important. And it's part of the exploration. Um, I'd like to stay with Larry and Mary, Larry and Marion, just to finish them off, because then we can get into Marion and her growth inside the Van Ryan house, because I think it's important. And I think they make really good points, especially with the Agnes point. Agnes is a whole character study in this episode 
all on its own. Let, let's stay with Mary, uh, Larry and Marion because it gets to the kiss and then we can move on from them because obviously it sets up the season three. Let's listen to that. Let's listen to their conversation because she's so weird with him because she, she's friend zoning him sometimes, but then giving off like a real vibe of like, I do like you other times. Really hard to read her body language when it comes to Larry. And I think Larry is very consistent in his body language with Marion. Let's listen to this clip because I think it's a whole evolution, their long walk across the street. You don't have to come across. You can watch me from here. Don't be silly. That was a delicious supper. Or should I say breakfast? <laughs> My mother knows how to manage those things. Her gift is management. So you're not getting married after all. And now you're to leave 61st Street. Where will you go? I'm not sure, but don't worry. I've got a job I enjoy and plenty to do. Will you stay in New York? I hope so. <laughs> I love New York. I love everything about it. Good. <laughs> I'd hate for us to have to say goodbye. We'll never say goodbye. <laughs> we know far too much about each other's lives not to be friends forever. So I let that clip play out and I edited it down because it was actually very long after she uh, friend zones him and then he stares at her and then they kiss. The only reason I let her play was because at the end she gives out that lovely, oh, and I thought it was very, very nice. I don't, what's your vibe? Are, if you're Larry, how are you taking Marion's body language? In one breath, she's kissing you, but in just seconds before that, she's saying, we'll always be friends. Well, I don't, I'm not going to hold that part against her at all because she may claim she, to not know how he feels, but this is where I'm talking about, like, she needs to take more control. Like, what I'm saying about that is not so much like, I need control in my life. I need to change everything I'm doing. Not like that. More like, I need to be a lot more aware of, like, what signals I'm sending off. Because again, I've gotten sort of accidentally proposed to more than once. And I am not really 100% sure of, of what I'm doing. And then I get in these spots and I can't really get out of them. So if she's into Larry, I want her to just be into Larry. I can't even tell though. She seems to really like him. But and, and they do have chemistry, and I do think Larry likes her, but I don't know why 100% I'm not getting buying signs Me that either. Marion's, like, into this. Me either. I, I am convinced. I don't think Marion is ever happier on this show that we see her. Let me say it that way. I don't think we ever see Marion happier than she when than when she is with Larry specifically. She I, smiles I, big. She, okay. Right? But... I also, and it's in my notes here, I am still very unconvinced of her feelings for him because, yes, she always seems very or most happy when she is with Larry, but it also doesn't feel like she is into him, I, or at least not in a way there's a, there's a like a subconscious vibe there I'm not getting. There is something else going on, but I, and and I'm not going to I I'm not going to agree that she's the happiest. I think she's the happiest when she's teaching. I think she's second happiest when she's talking with Peggy, and I think she's third happiest with Larry. I think he's the only man she deals with where she is like truly happy and excited, but also he has come through for her. Like, I mean, remember, he's the one who was going to deliver those letters in season one for her. And he's the one who's like been like, you know, picking her up after everything and saying, like, I'll, I'll be the one, you know, I'll dance with you. Like, come on, let's dance. 
So I get it that she has in many ways like friend zoned him in a way that I hope she does see him as like a viable person to be in a relationship with. I'm just not sure she does. I mean, do we think that he's maybe a little bit younger than her? Mm, it's it's hard to say. Larry's done with college, so this puts him in his right. early twenties. But kind of like just done with college, like still hanging out with college friends. Marion can't be that much older, though. I feel like because then she would already be very spinstery. Like I feel like she's right? very borderline spinstery for for this time, but not quite there yet. Obviously, people are still pursuing her. Dashiell's pursuing her. Mister Rake's pursued her and for a while. Anyone who's listening, like, don't don't think that me and Mike think she's a spinster. No, no we don't. No, We're saying the, for the time for and the for time, right. if you're if you come out at eighteen, then by the time you're twenty one, if you're not spoken for, then what's going on with you? Um, Even so more so. You can, come out like 16 or right i mean like i think i think uh gladys is i think canonically 16 when she comes out into society so if she's not married at 21 22 like people are talking there's there's an issue there in at this time right no obviously so but i but i guess a little bit older getting that chemistry i'm not getting like i get this great friend chemistry i get this great the smiles between them are so genuine and sincere and and authentic but at the same time i i like that little noise she makes at the end about about like having the kiss but at the same time what are you doing why are you like casual kissing like if you're not sure of your feelings for him this is what agnes is saying get control of your life it's get control of you like what are you doing what are the choices you're making what are these what are these little decisions like oh i'm just gonna kiss this guy well hang on a second it really doesn't even suit Marion. Like, she isn't someone who would just go around kissing whomever. So it's like kind of like, well, if you aren't really into him, what are you doing? What are right. you doing, Miss Marion? And she, I mean, I don't want to be body language police here, but she certainly doesn't seem to mind the kiss. No, she seems happy, and she goes to the Met. That's the most important. Well, I'm thing. saying this is the more this is the morning after, right on the steps. I mean, as literally Jack is about to open a door, she's 100%. just getting right. back on her feet from being swoon kissed, and she seems pleasant, like pleasantly happy about that. But yeah, but I agree with you. I, I very much agree with you. I think great friend chemistry. Obviously, I think Larry is heavily radiating love chemistry uh, her way. I don't feel her reciprocating it, and so if not, you're a thousand percent right you can't be kissing him on the stairs when the street is a bustle this is not the middle of the night when no one's out like jack is opening the door looking for you mm-hmm. <laughs> your answer gathered you can't be kissing people who are also in the dating pool of your age unless you mean it to mean something. And if it doesn't mean anything, then, girl, what are you doing? The day after you broke off your very public engagement. <laughs> very public engagement. <laughs> this is your second strike. The second one much more mm-hmm. public than the first, she is about to say here. Let's get to Marion and the undoing of Dashiell because this is this is a whole... Greek tragedy in three parts. Uh, Dashiell puts the, I mean, this is clearly not something Marion has been into, but she has been as cruel as it may be, or, or unfortunate as it is to say it, she's been kind of able to hide from Dashiell lately because they've been in mourning with Luke's passing. So would they even say in this episode, haven't seen much of each other lately. I think Marion is totally okay with that. Let's play this clip of what I'm calling Harriet's wedding. How is Francis? 
Very well. She's properly settled in New York, and I really think she's starting to blossom. I often wonder what Harriet would make of her, this grown-up young lady that's taken the place of her child. As you may know, things could not be worse with us. Aurora said, might it make sense if I were to pay for the wedding? Oh. I know it's not customary. I am touched that your resolve is undimmed by our disaster. That's kind of you to offer. Well, wouldn't it help for you to enjoy Harriet's wedding without worrying? Quite right. It is my dearest wish to see Marion happy. Good God, man. At least get the living woman's name right. Harriet's wedding. I mean, for Agnes yeah. to have to be like, yes, love Marion to be happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was ugh. I mean, it was totally friends. I take the Rachel, like, we got the whole vibe there. Like, that was awful. And and you know what, though? I think finally gave Marion the out. If everybody else who was sitting around saying, like, yeah, but just come on. You know, you this is a ready-made family. You can easily fall in with this guy. He's obviously, he's got the money. He's got enough status. He's, you know, this will be easy. You can keep doing what you're doing. But when he says Harriet, I think it is an awesome straw that breaks the camel's back. Like, even if you could have gotten along with all that, you can't handle your husband loving another woman still. And and I understand. I mean, obviously, when you have a situation where someone has passed away, I have no idea what the etiquette is for if you accidentally say that person's name or if you, you do still sit and grieve for them and be sad. Like, is that to be held against you for still loving someone who's passed away? It's not it's not like you're cheating on anyone. I mean, it's okay to still love her, but I feel like when you're talking about your wedding, there shouldn't be any confusion about (laughs) who the the person's name is that you're actually getting married to. That was like the, okay, it's okay for you to not want to marry him. Like he's not ready. And, And that's a good enough reason to not move forward. Let's play the breakup clip because after that, I, I want to talk about I want to talk about how she handles it, which I think is good. But I really want to talk about our final verdict on Dashiell because my feeling is we will not be revisiting Dashiell next season. So get ready to do a little final verdict on Dashiell Montgomery. I cannot marry you. What? I can't be your wife. It wouldn't be right. I'm sorry. But I thought you loved me. I thought. You love Francis. I do love Francis. And I am so sad if this is disappointing for her. Then why are you doing it? Because I don't think we want the same things. Or even the same life. I want a life like everyone else's. But I don't. Or not yet. I I want to do some good in the world before I settle down. I don't understand. Do you love me as much as you loved Harriet? Be honest, please. Harriet is dead. Of course. I know you're lonely. I know you want a mother for Francis. But in your heart, Harriet is still your wife. You can't stop loving people when you want to. Nor should you. But one day you'll meet a woman who's not just a temporary solution, and who actually shares your dreams. I want that for you, but I am not her. You know it's true. 
Why didn't you say this last night? Man, there's a lot to unpack in that clip. Uh, <laughs> it's telling. She says, I thought you loved me. He says, I thought you loved me. I thought you loved Francis. She says, I did love Francis. I do love Francis. I'm very much skipping over the loving you part. <laughs> yeah, it was like <laughs> that part was probably the most painful part, to be honest, when she's like, I adore Francis. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's still going to be so hard to hear. Like, you can't be like, and I love you in some ways. Like, say something else. But like, oh, my God. But what else was she to say? And thank God he backed right into that situation where he's like, I just want life like everybody else. And that was so easy for her to be like, not me. So this is why we don't get along. Like, she could have kind of said, like, anything at that point. But that was good. He set her up nicely to be like, eh, no, I don't want the same thing as everyone else. So got to move on. But guess what? He wasn't actually that shocked that she wasn't in love with him. She, he, and he, he was totes cool about it. Yes. He just he was like, if you're hurting Francis's feelings, then why are you why are you not going through with it? And it's like, yo, Dashel, <laughs> like, we've got to do better than this. You can do better than this. Find someone who loves you, too. Right. I think mean, I think let's 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 talk about this because you and I talked about this. I sent you a text out of the blue as I was rewatching this. I said, you know, in the end, I don't think Dashiell is actually a villain. And and I phrased it that way because Dashiell has exhibited some shitty behavior as of late. His comments about her not being a real teacher, the very manipulative, shitty proposal, ju- just some real Neanderthal things. And and the and the fact that he was very clearly just looking to slot in a new mother and wife, and she's just the closest fit for it right now. And he knows that she needs to get married. I feel at least for me anyway, I have definitely been painting Dashiell as a villain as of late. Watching this, watching his reaction here, watching his body language, the fact that the fact that he does accept this, all of this taken together, I really, I really ruminated on this. I feel for Dashiell a little bit. I can't imagine being a widowed father in the situation where clearly he loved his wife so so much aches for his daughter not having a mother anymore around him and i i think i appreciate a bit where he's coming from and and this idea of i i don't even need you to love me but just love my child and make her happy and and that'll be enough but it's not and it's not enough and i think the best thing marion does for him is explain it to him this way and she does put it on to him she says do you love me even remotely close to how much you loved harriet be honest you don't and you know you don't and you know this is the best for both of us this is not just me breaking your heart this is right for both of us you will regret this she is saying through you know between the lines and she is a hundred percent right this would not be a love marriage maybe maybe francis and uh, but even that eventually Marion would begin to resent Francis. And that would be a negative experience for Francis because Marion would be trapped in this loveless marriage where Dashiell is snogging the the giant frame portrait of his dead wife at night instead of Marion. It, it's very messy, but, but Dashiell needed this, I think. And I hope he can take this step and and move on and heal. He hasn't healed. I think that's my point. He is still very fresh in his feelings and loss for his wife. And he cannot 
have a good, healthy relationship with anyone, I don't think, until he really, truly deals with that. He has not taken any time for himself. And here's the deal. Like, the idea of just, like, having someone for Francis, Francis, we decided, was, like, 14 or something like that. Well, we just said you come out when you're, like, 16, and you're probably married by 18 or 19. So we're only talking about a couple of years where Francis is, like, really in play here. And then what? Marion and Dashiell are just, like, looking at each other, like, married in cousins. Like, well, I I completed your family, and now what do I do? Like, they just don't have that relationship. Dashiell seems like a perfectly nice person, but he is wrapped up in his, sadly, in his wife's passing. And... You know, for the same reason why it would be a terrible idea for Ada to start trying to date anybody anytime mm-hmm. soon. It's the great, same thing. Great like, analogy. Yeah. Like, just, it's, no one's ready for that. And and it's okay. Like, let's let's just say it's okay. I feel like he thought the best thing he was doing for his family was the best thing for everyone. And he, and I think that many women who were not Marian, who didn't have a job themselves, who didn't have aspirations to do things on their own, he would be a great option, honestly, a wonderful option. But, you know, he was never quite right for Marion. We, I mean, we said at the beginning, his name was Dashiell. It seemed like he was going to be the dashing prince. And maybe, maybe that is kind of the point of it is like, don't judge a book by its cover. Like, turns out he was actually a wounded bird with a lot of baggage about his wife and really wasn't ready. You know, he he wasn't ready either. Like, she's letting them both out of this situation. Right, right. And that's what I'm saying. I hope he, I hope it's too much to expect him to appreciate it now but i hope down the road he looks back and does drop her a note and say thank you do you think he comes into play in season three or like i, do or, not. Or, I think this I is it. that's either. why i wanted to talk about him because i i think we need to do the post-mortem on him because i i think i think yeah. he's going to be done dusted maybe francis because we're, we're going to come up on the hard conversation the the conversation that i think Miriam was really dreading was the one she had to have with francis not really with dashiell she was very resolute in her feelings about dashiell remember you love me you love francis i love francis you know mm-hmm. dashiell was very easy to go but before we leave it, though, I think I think really sweetly she makes a great point of we don't want the same things in life after he leaves Ada, you know, confesses wise that she made the right call and she sums it up best. Dashiell still loves his wife. And that's it. That's the end of the sentence. You can't take on a new wife when you still love your wife so actively, not not passively, not in the I will always love her to some extent. I mean, she was my wife for X number of years. She had gave me Francis and, and she's dead and I'm always going to love her. That's fine. But you're actively like, oh, I'm going to make Harriet so, so happy. No, her name's Marion, not Harriet. He's acting still loving his wife and has not begun to move on from that. He can't be in this relationship. And we don't have to fault him for that. Like, nobody no, has to no, be no, angry no, at I'm him. Yeah, you I, know, I, but I'm talking yeah. to our audience. Like, nobody needs to sit back and say, like, Dashiell was a bad guy and he should have known he wasn't ready. And he and he wasn't mistaking names. He, he didn't mistake the name. He said the name who he loved, you know. And there was not any conversations between Marion and Dashiell about how much they love each other. Not really. It's, it's a lot about family and it's a lot about about Francis. Now, I was actually surprised that we had this conversation with Francis and Marion because I think there's a lot of women who would have backed out of that situation and expected Dashiell to just explain what happened. I think it's actually kind of 
unorthodox to have this person sit down without Dashiell even being there and talking to the kiddo. Now, this only works for me because she is the teacher and they are related in this you know, married in a way. So, so there does have to be some, like, we're obviously going to still see each other, which I love that Marion said, like, I am going to see you all the time and I'm going to dance at your wedding. And I was like, I thought that was all very sweet and very reassuring. And sadly, all that Francis needed, she didn't need Dashiell to marry Marion. That's kind of the extra sad part is like, no one needed this marriage. I think a key to Dashiell's mind and, and where his mind is at is when she says, what do you want out of life? And he's like, I want what everyone wants. And she says, well, I don't like I want to do some good in the world or, you know, or at least not right now. I want to do some good in the world. I want to teach like she has other things. But he was like, I don't know. Let me look at my script. I am a man of X age with a child. Uh, my script here says I need to find a wife and new mother. So let me go do that. And I think that's all Dashiell's, that, that's, I think, the extent of his plan. Society says I have to get a new wife to be my wife and to share my bed. And I have to get a new mother for my daughter because I am a man in 1883 and ill-equipped to answer the the questions, the beguiling questions of a, of a coming of age young woman. She needs her mother. And that's what the script says, because that's what society says. Let's be super clear, too, because we have talked a lot about what women's roles were in this day. And we talked a lot about how they were sort of hands tied behind their back. Like, if you don't get married, what are you going to do? But the same can be said for men that, yes, men could be single, but questions were asked, right? If you're single too long, questions are being asked of you. So you are also expected to be married. I can remember several shows where like the idea of a single president was like off the table. Like if you're going to be president of the United States, you have to be married. Like we don't want to talk to you otherwise. It's right? literally the entire There's, driving force of package. Oscar's. It's Oscar's entire driving storyline yeah. is that he has to get married. And Dashiell, unfortunately, is not old enough. He can he there comes an age where he can be widowed and not have to remarry, but not yet. He's still too young to be widowed with a daughter and not married. He has to society dictates that or just telling him anyway that he has to marry again. Why not your cousin? She's right there. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the way things worked. It's the way that money stayed secure. It's the way that we kept people safe, basically, is by is by keeping them in these clumps. Right. That's the way people serve. Survive. This is still a difficult time when people pass away over nothing. Look at look at Uncle Luke here. You know, like he passed away in all of like a two shows. So, you know, people come and go. And that's why it's super important to be married and have like adults in kids lives and stuff, because Dashiell could die next week of like the croup or something, you know, who knows? So it's it, you can understand the importance of it societally, but Man, when once they really started talking, it was like, oh, Dashiell doesn't even love her one bit. She just fit. She checked all the boxes, basically. Except except for the love box, right? She checked all I of the... I don't even know if that was a box for him because he still loved Harriet. So he wasn't looking necessarily for like a love match. He already has a love match. Right, but, right. but if you asked him, he was like, of course rest. I love her. He would he would have declared, he would have said he loved Marion without second, without missing a beat. I don't think he would have met it because I don't think he understands. It. I think he just says she, because she checks, I think it's more all of the boxes are checked and then there's an equal sign, which means love, right? She's the right age. She has yeah. the right family. It's his family. <laughs> it's his family <laughs> but through marriage. It's not weird. 
It was just too convenient. That was it. It was convenient. And she worked at the school. Frances already liked her. Like, it was just easy. And oftentimes when something's easy, it might not be the right thing to do. Marion says to Ada, well, I just used you and Uncle Luke as the guide for my love, which I thought was very sweet, but also believable. Does it matter? I mean, okay, they had a whole their entire relationship start to death was six months tops. You're not buying it? You know what? Maybe I'm not buying it, but also maybe I don't care because it's sweet. There's a couple things coming up with Ada here. A lot of this Ada stuff, I don't think I buy. You know what? I'm going to ride it because I like it. Okay, let's go. Because I don't think it really matters, but we're not updating it, though. Let's do Francis. Why aren't you going to marry my father? Why did you change your mind? Sometimes you don't understand a situation at first. But when you think about it properly, you realize that it's just not right. Not for him, not for me. So won't we see each other anymore? Out of school, I mean. Of course we'll see each other. I want to follow every stage of your life and dance at your wedding with joy. You don't not love us, then? I love you a lot. I love your father, too, just not quite as a wife should love a husband. But I pray one day we'll all three be as happy as can be. I mean, she could have used that exact speech with Dashiell the night before. It's really perfect and really succinct. I love you, just not as a wife should love a husband. Well, because we have this weird cousin thing that is in the mix. Like, that is a cousin just like that you only extra... met six months ago. Yes, it's just an extra weird... I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I feel like we've talked about Dashiell and Marion pretty darn well here, and even Francis. I mean, I think that ultimately Francis is completely fine, and yeah. Dashiell is completely fine, and Marion is completely fine. This was just like a... We thought this could work. We thought it was a good idea. And once any one of us tapped out, it was like, yeah, well, we didn't think it would go. (laughs) So what are you going to do? Like, everyone was fine. Francis was totally cool with it. Right, because all she wanted was that you're not going to disappear from my life, which I think... I mean, people who have been in relationships or long, long, especially long relationships, or or I guess if you're dating members of your family, like this is a thing that does come up is what happens with, you know, the stepkid, right? If step, if, if two divorced people get married and then the stepkids and then there's love there and then they break up, like it comes up. We see it on TV. We see it in movies. We see it in real life where, okay, but you're not with mom or dad anymore. Do you still love me? Do you get to leave me? Like they just want to make sure that you're not going to leave them, right? They don't want to be left out in the cold, even if the adult shit's not working. So it was clear in Francis's conversation there that she had already been told that they were not getting married. And so I do want to be like clear when, and I said, like, I thought it was a little weird because normally that conversation would happen, like, with Dashiell or whatever. But I get it. It seems a little bit like Francis was told and then she just kind of, like, couldn't hold it in. Like, she needed a better explanation. So it's right. not like Marion sought out Francis to have this conversation. Like, Francis kind of springs it on her. But I'm glad that this was a, a good example of Marion being ready and taking control of her life by having good answers and by sticking to her guns and not acting weird about it and just being like, yep, I'm 
here and I'm going to still be here for you and I love you and let's just move on with our lives. Like that was her being like a full, strong spined, independent woman. Like she could answer the questions fully and not feel weird or and not backtrack on anything she said. Uh, it's funny. Go watch the scene again. The bell rings. The class ends. All the art students are leaving. Marion has her back as Francis is approaching. She puts down her chalk. She turns around and she sucks in this breath that uh, I completely decoded as ah shit. Here we go. She goes. 100%. <gasps> she kind of yeah, like. She's yeah. kind of like. She kind of like sighs and takes a breath in, and it's very much like ah fuck. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, she's like, you're not gonna. Why aren't you gonna marry my father? Like, why'd you change your mind? So it's it's interesting. It's did Dash will go home and be like, Marion's not marrying us. Ask her about it. Or did she say, did he go home and say, Marion's not going to marry me. She doesn't love us. I, I'm curious which one he went with because she does approach Marion to ask her about it, which takes balls as a, as a, for anyone to approach anyone about it, but especially as a 12, 13, 14 year old to, to approach her teacher figure who also is maybe going to be her mom and ask her about it. So I'm curious if Dasha was like, I don't know. She was speaking woman stuff. You have to talk to her about it. I'm curious what Dasha actually said to her along with Marion's not going to marry us and you know he definitely said marry us because that's how mm. Dasha would broach that to his daughter for sure yuck I don't like any of it ew we've alluded to this conversation a couple times but it's a really good one it's one of the better clips in the episode it's the two strikes conversation between Marion who has to deal with what she is expecting to be significant fallout from her aunt do you need Bannister to escort you across the street no they'll collect me from here should we wish each other luck? I do wish you luck, Contagnus. And I know I've been a disappointment. Even I don't expect you to marry in order to please me. Thank you. But now you have two strikes against you, Marion. The second more public than the first. You can't afford another. No. I've said enough. Enjoy your evening. But remember, time passes quickly. Don't throw your life away. What more could you ask from Agnes? Except for the outburst that begins this episode, which we're going to play next when we get to Agnes and Oscar. Agnes is real resigned and real chill in this episode. A lot of shit not going her way, and she kind of rolls with all of it. <laughs> See, and I, I don't know if I would say she rolls with it or she just has to keep perspective that, like, she's got bigger fish to fry than whether Marion and Dashiell necessarily get married resigned to it not that she's not that she's happy about i don't think she's happy about anything that's happening here no, not but at she all. is she is no longer being the rock upon which progress breaks and dies to quote john dutton from yellowstone she is realizing that you know what i can't stop the world from turning she lets her go to the Met, oh, to the Met opening, and sit in the central box of the perceived enemy without a whole lot of fuss. Marion breaks off the marriage to her cousin that Agnes very we we're forgetting we haven't talked about really at all in this episode Agnes very much orchestrated with all of her secret missives between her and Dashiell. 
and she really lets it go with, you know, just you've got two strikes. You got to be aware, like, don't waste your life. You can't ruin your life. And you've got to you've got to take control of your life because it's going to go fast. Like she's being very okay with things whether she likes it or not she is no longer standing there with her hands out in front of her screaming trying to hold back the tide that's growth i don't know if that well i think it's growth it may just be giving up <laughs> you know it, it's either giving up or it's growth or it's some combination but it's definitely a change it's definitely not season one agnes not at all I am surprised at Agnes's response at the majority of these things, but I honestly, the Oscar situation has her 90% of her brain, and then the the opera stuff has like 5%, and the other 5% is for like Marion and other. And so I think, I mean, and again, Luke just died. We just had that whole happening. I think that Agnes has had a lot going on. And we said at the very, very beginning of this season that Agnes is slowing down. Like we we talked about that. If you mm-hmm. guys remember the first first lines of the first episode of this season is, you know, basically that she's slowing down, that maybe they shouldn't be walking to church. And so it makes sense to me that we are getting a more calm, resigned life happens, shit happens kind of Agnes by the end where she's realizing like, I can't control everything. I got to work on on Oscar and my money. I can't really put in all this effort and energy into the opera wars or into what's going on with Marion. Like I kind of can't, you know, like she doesn't really have the bandwidth to, to keep going with all of these things. And she's, and she just finished consoling her sister. So I'm going to go with, she's tired She's exhausted by all this shit. And honestly, her money and everything that's going on with Oscar is is just taking over her full brain. Let, let's go through it, because I think even as this episode goes on, though, when she puts herself in position of Armstrong after her conversation with Peggy, even the money thing really seems to settle her down. I mean, let's let's go through it, because it's certainly not how the episode begins. And there is a, an absolute classic Agnes witticism uh, in this clip, but let, this is from the very beginning of the episode. So the long and short of it is that I'm ruined. Well, there is a little left. And if you sell this house and find a more modest lodging, perhaps a little further downtown? In the Jewish quarter. Agnes, don't start with your nonsense. With sensible investments, you will have an income to live on. It will not be luxurious, but you won't be destitute. I must find some loose Arab clothing. I believe you can put it on without a maid. I'll discuss this with whoever manages your affairs. My son has managed my affairs until now. He will not do so in future. Mama, I don't know how many times I can say I'm sorry. What do I care that you're sorry? You ruin your mother and tip your family into the dirt. You throw away the work of centuries. So this is to be the end of my story. I survive my feckless brother and marry a man who was not easy so that I might live a life that was dignified and secure. But instead I am to be turned out of my house to beg for my bread on street corners. Aunt Agnes, Oscar didn't... Oscar didn't what? Make inquiries? Check Miss Beaton's history? Take the usual precautions that any sane housewife would take just to order a loaf of bread? No, you're right, he didn't. Damn, Baranski's so good. Tip your family into the dirt and threw away the work of centuries. That's some good shit. Yeah, Damn. No, excellent, excellent work. That that should be in for an Emmy nomination there, I think. 
I mean, and I got to go find some loose Arab clothing. Shit, I didn't even know. I didn't I've, kid, I I've been told, here with my valet putting on clothes <laughs> this whole time. The first couple times I heard it, I was like, what? And then I was like, ah, oh, you could put it on. It's more loose. Okay, I got it. No corsets. I got it. But the uh, oh, my God, just everything, everything about this. Again, this shows where her mindset is. This is where she can be. And she can try to be a friend of Mrs. Astor. And then that's about where her her energy ends you know like she's got to deal with oscar in this whole money situation uh, i gotta ask myself where has mr harcourt been this entire time he should have been in charge with the money he seems to have a really good handle on what their assets are and what things are you know just thinking back to man maybe oscar shouldn't have been just given free reign and and giant investments without someone else checking on it uh, as part of our as part of our conversation about Agnes and how she's kind of either giving up or giving in or just being focused on other things, I want to I want to go back to where Marion asks permission to go to the Met, because this is another example of kind of like her in the two strikes conversation. She protests, but not nearly as vociferously as the Agnes we know normally would and ultimately also gives in uh, very anti, very unlike Agnes behavior. Uh, let's play this, but also interesting con concept on loyalty. That's why I want you guys to focus on when you listen to this, her idea of what old, what old money thinks loyalty means and friendship means. Aunt Agnes, I've had an invitation too, and I'm very much afraid it will annoy you. Why would I expect anything else? Agnes. The Russells have asked me to their box at the Met for the opening night. The Met? Is that what we are now to call the Metropolitan? I'd like to go. Which Russell has invited you? I hope it wasn't the son. Mrs. Russell asked me. She would. Just spite me. So my niece will be in the enemy camp. You never made it a condition that Marion should be at the Academy for the opening. I want to see the new opera house. And so you will throw over an old friend without a backward glance. The Academy isn't my old friend. I'd never heard of it before I came to New York. In our world, old friendships are hereditary. I like that line. In our world, old friendships are hereditary. And then she takes a big gulp of her wine. Mm -hmm. It's not too long ago that Agnes of old would say something like, you tip our family into the gutter when, you know, <laughs> for going to the Met instead of the Academy. And here she's just like, oh, my, my, you know, like, you know, the enemy, sleeping with the enemy in the box, you know, like very, very casual for Agnes is my point. I think it's just bigger fish to fry. That's the whole thing right now. You're right. At any other point, this would be willing to, she would be willing to go to the mat. She would say, if you go there, you have got to move out of this house. You're no longer part of my family, like blah, blah, blah. She would have said a bunch of stuff, maybe season one. On the heels of everything that happened with Oscar, mm -mm. everything's been put into perspective. And the only thing that she's really thinking about is her own money and her own status. And she no longer can be the curator of everybody else. Like everybody else is on your own, y'all. <laughs> Figure it out. Because that's basically where, where we're ending with her is like, you know, maybe my staff's going to be all gone. Like, I don't even know. Like, she has no idea how this is going to play out for her. So... At that point, you throw your hands up and are like, you know what? Y'all all do whatever you want to go do. <laughs> I'm done with all of you. Let, let's continue on this, too, because this is another example is in her conversation with Armstrong. So because uh, the clip had to get cut down, the background is here. She had 
she was talking with Peggy earlier. Peggy mentions that Armstrong is taking it very hard about maybe having to find another job and maybe feels like she can't find another job. Then when Agnes and Armstrong are going through all of her clothes, she is lamenting pretty gently and without a lot of piss in fire about the fact that she has so much clothes and she, you know, just it's going to be it's going to be a big adjustment for everyone. And Armstrong says, well, you've got your friends. And 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 Agnes says, yeah, they'll try for a while, but eventually they'll move on from us because we'll be out of sight and out of mind. And that's just the way it goes. Very resigned. But really, this whole conversation is just for Agnes to get to talk about Armstrong. Let's listen to it because, again, not the Agnes that we 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 would expect typically, given all that's going on. What about you, Armstrong? Have you found a new place yet? I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, which of us does? But we have been down bumpy roads before you and I, and and we've got past them. Would you like to come with us? What? You'll be working for nobodies, and I I can't pay much or make any promises when it comes to how we'll live, but you're welcome if, if you would like to try it. Yes, ma'am, I would. Thank you. But why have you changed your mind? Have I? Perhaps I have. It was something Miss Scott said. Miss Scott? What would she have to say about me? Why, don't you like the idea that she would have sympathy for you? I have in my notes here, Agnes offers Armstrong to stay on with them, but the prices that Armstrong has to know, it's because of Peggy and her sympathy for her. Mm -hmm. It's very much a price Agnes is forcing Armstrong to pay here. And it's interesting. She continues to try and make Armstrong change through these kind of forced efforts. Is that how you took it? Or am I reading too much into it? No, I, I think she definitely like held her nose down on the carpet and was like, listen up. <laughs> like this is this is the reality of it. And like you need to understand the mistakes you've made and in and, and misjudging Peggy and misunderstanding the whole situation here. Like you need to shape up and act right. And that's what I'm, that's what I see out of this. And Armstrong, I would love to think would actually take that to heart because she was so certain, like, this is it. Like she was going to be destitute. She was going to be the one that was going to starve to death. She was the one out on her ear. And so the second that Agnes says, like, actually, do you want to come with? You would think that somehow that 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 mercy, that grace that that Agnes is showing to her. She's trying to say, see what I see, what you can do for someone else. See when you can ease up and just be kind for kindness sake, even if even if you don't even like have it to give, because at this point, Agnes is saying, like, I don't even know what I have to give to you. But offering and being there like human to human is everything. And Armstrong feels that relief. And then is quickly reminded of like, yeah, and guess who you aren't ever showing any grace to or mercy to this person over here, Peggy, who has been nothing but kind and trying to be nice to you. So I I think it was an important little lesson to say, I don't think it will affect old Armstrong. I'm, I'm sad to say I think she's going to take at least three tries. I mean, if, if the sewing didn't help the, you know, that Peggy did for her and Agnes has been admonishing her, admonishing her the whole time, please stop talking bad about Peggy, blah, blah, blah. Mm -mm. 
I think Armstrong, she's just she's kind of a lost cause on this particular matter. But it would be nice to see some season three growth from her. It would, but the odds in Vegas, I checked with them earlier, not <laughs> great. Well, yeah, I mean, you can get real good odds, actually, if you want to guess that Armstrong's going to change, because she's probably not. She's probably not. It's almost like Agnes burns her entire fire in that opening scene, and she is just exhausted the rest of the episode, where she is very gentle. This whole scene, and again, I had to, I had to edit it down. The whole scene was like three minutes long. She's very gentle and very resigned. She is not, she's not throwing shit. She's not, you know, cursing Oscar's name. She's, she is just, she's just dealing with it. You know, and she says earlier, you know, like I got through a difficult man I was married to, a feckless brother. I got through all of that. And this is what's going to toss me out and ruin my life. But like, I feel like all of that fire and anger, like, burned itself out it she exercised it all in that opening rant because it's everything she has possibly ever worked for and managed to keep all this time and that's the thing that i think all of us have to remember as audience members we have to remember she spelled it out to us about how she managed to keep the money and how she got the money in the first place but the idea that your own child that you didn't teach him well enough how to manage the money and well enough how to be responsible and and vet people and don't just give away checks to people you don't really know that has got to be this level of personal shame like not only did they lose the money which you're right it could have been through a lawyer that they had that was managing things or a banker that they had but it was her own son and so for her i mean i got i mean this this is like insult to injury in such a massive way that yeah, it took all the wind out of her sails. She she could not be the barking dog anymore to everybody else. Let's go to Peggy. Let's wrap up, uh, wrap up Peggy's storyline, which we actually haven't talked about at all. It's funny how Peggy was really, really cut off from everyone else so largely. Her storyline was very cut off from everyone in this season. And I know that because when we talk about her storyline, it almost always lifts out cleanly with no overlap to anyone else's storyline in the show. It's interesting. It's very much like she has her own show going on within the show. There's no Peggy going to the Met or to the Academy, you know? Like it's just it's just interesting how much everyone's life is interconnected except for Peggy's. I don't know what I think about that. I don't know what I think about that. I don't know what that means for season three and where we go with Peggy's story, but let's wrap it up. We got to wrap up this. Let's wrap up. Let's listen to the uh, end of the school board storyline right here. Uh, excuse me. This is a private meeting. Is this a meeting to discuss the closure of the colored public schools? These people are gathered together. Are you discussing the closure of the three colored public schools? Well, there are many other items on the agenda. Why was the time of the meeting changed from tomorrow? Today was found to be more convenient. But why were we not informed? Many of us are parents of the children at those schools, and yet we were not told. Why is that? It must have been an oversight. Then will you listen to our arguments? We have lists of pupils anxious to enroll, too many for the schools to accommodate. And we have applications from teachers all keen to contribute. This is most unorthodox. If we have more children than the schools can take, and more teachers than we need to guide them, why are you closing them down?
We must consider the evidence. You must consider the evidence. There's a lot of evidence. The Irish and the people of color have formed an alliance. Peggy and T. Thomas have blown the roof off of it. They have gotten more students and more teachers than they know what to do with. And they end up still closing one of the three schools in, in question here. All right. We wrapped up the school board story. Caroline, why do I care? Beyond this being a very important part of actual history, narratively, in the Gilded Age, why do I care? Why do I care about this story? Okay, so I'm going to give a couple of reasons. Okay, for one, it allowed Arthur to come to the forefront and and lead in a cause that he cared about, that Peggy and Dorothy cared about. And so in many ways, Arthur redeemed himself in their eyes. Not fully. It's never, ever going to be over about the baby. But we are definitely thinking he's a much more upstanding citizen in this world. He actually does care about causes and he very much is trying to stand up for right. So I think all the twists and turns they took about trying to, you know, reschedule the meeting and do all the different things. Good on Arthur for figuring it all out, not getting confused. That's one thing I very much like the writing on this show. It's like back when Turner was trying to do stuff with the Duke, like Watson figured it out right away. It gets nipped in the bud right away. I It was the same thing. They changed the meeting. Arthur figured it out right away. They got there in time. I think that was like the main thing. But it also put Peggy and Dorothy working in the same space where then T. Thomas comes into play, where then now Dorothy is like more privy to what the goings-ons between Peggy and T. Thomas are, and she can start asking more questions. And she already had about everything going on in Tuskegee, but now she's seeing it like it's happening because they're talking about working on a story and it's all happening right around her. There's a lot more pressure, I think, suddenly on Peggy, like, this is what it's going to be like. And like your parents are involved in this cause now and now you're writing about this. And now this this kind of illicit situation you have going on is now under scrutiny. What are you going to do about it? Like, are you going to lie? Are you going to hide or are you going to be done and say, like, this isn't for me? I'm not about hiding stuff that I'm doing. I, you know, I want to live a life that I'm proud of. I think that that's why this situation, of course, they also do a great job of of lacing historical events into this to to kind of ground it and make us feel like where we are in time and and what different people in society were still dealing with. So it's like, yeah, we're dealing with opera wars. If you're not a person of color, if you're a person of color, we're just trying to keep your schools open. Like that's a big difference in what the life is. I agree with you. I, I agree with you. And I think that is the point of all of it. I think it is also interesting, though, in the heels of this episode where Agnes is advising Marion to don't throw your life away and be active, a participant in your life. And Marion is saying to Bertha's kids, your mother knows what she wants, and perhaps that's the trick to getting it. And Dorothy, two episodes ago, an episode ago, telling her daughter, don't get so busy writing about people's lives that you forget to live your own. This storyline was very much about something that Peggy was just witness to. Even when Peggy is being given credit for writing the story that blew the roof off of this issue and made it a public issue, and it's the reason, actually, the remember the pharmacist or the sales 
pharma salesman that's selling the salicylic acid to Arthur drops by accident because he doesn't realize Arthur doesn't know about the meeting being changed. He says, well, it's because of your daughter and her article. Peggy is just, she's, she's a witness to it. She's doing exactly kind of what her mother warned her not to do. So I guess in that way, I am happy in her resolution here. We're going to talk about in a second about her decision to leave the globe and leave T. Thomas. And it's important. But I also wonder if there wasn't a better way to keep her more central to the story while also getting us to the same place, I guess. I don't know. I feel I don't know how I feel about this again. And it has nothing to do with the historical thing. Again, I, this is a really uh, this is nationally an important historical moment that took place in Brooklyn and in New York at this time with the segregation of the schools and the rights of black students to have an education and the rights of black teachers to teach in the school system and the the pros and cons against segregation. Very important. And I'm glad that the show tackled it and, and really spread light on something that I think a lot of people don't even know it happened. But I think it came a bit at the expense of putting Peggy on the sideline and, you know, yes, it was very good for Arthur and it was very good for Dorothy. And you're very right. It did put Dorothy next to her daughter so she could see herself and which exposed Peggy and made her and made her examine her life closely, where maybe it would have been easier for her to continue or fall down into a more illicit life that she really wouldn't, that would have been beneath her. But I, I, I'm uneasy. I'm uneasy about whether or not Peggy, the character, was done dirty or not by this whole storyline at the end. I want to have good feelings about it, but I, I don't know that I do. What I do have good feelings about is about how Peggy handles telling T. Thomas that she can't work at the Globe anymore. Well, I, I wanted to point out, I mean, of course, I mean, the whole portion where T. Thomas's wife is actually there as a part of this cause because she's getting her dress cut down from being pregnant. And so she doesn't need this like maternity dress anymore. She just she needs like a smaller dress. That whole thing right then like blew up everything that Peggy was thinking in her mind of this of this romantic well, it situation. Made it very she had. real for her. I mean, very real, and that this woman was a real person with a. There's a real baby. There's a real everything happening over here. So to me, I mean, I I appreciate what you're saying. Like, but also. This was the upper wars. This isn't a part of society that Peggy's a part of. That's true. So she was a part of the house and the finances and the talking about Armstrong and the and the roles that that Peggy would play. She was a part of the things that she could be a part of. But but that high society rung, she's never been a part of. She wasn't at the ball last finale in last season. You know, she she wasn't at these things. So I'm not going to take it too harshly because I really think that the payoff we got with Arthur getting back in a better place with both Dorothy and Peggy. And of course, as you're going to play this clip, everything that goes on with Peggy having to do with her career I'm happy we spent that much time. And so it didn't have to wrap in with Marion and the Van Rines and everything that was going on. It's okay by me that she actually got like a spotlight story that was really about her and her journey. I agree. And I think this clip is going to set her up for a very well for potentially a very interesting and maybe front burner storyline in season three. So let's let's give a listen to Peggy Quits. I won't be returning to the paper. Why not? Have you got an offer from another publication? There's no other offer. Then why leave? 
Mr. Fortune, I will always be grateful for everything we did together. For the stories we covered. For the chances you gave me. I, I have a voice now. A voice our readers are anxious to hear. Don't abandon them when you're just creating a name for yourself. This doesn't make sense. I'm afraid it's how it has to be. But... We can't continue like this. At least I know I can't. So what are your plans? I'm not sure. I, I have a novel that I've put off for far too long. Good. Because you have things to say and you know how to say them. I hope so. We both have work to do. And we need no distractions. Well, that's true. You deserve to be at the center of your own life. Thank you. There's nothing I can say to make you change your mind? No. I just wish things could have been different. Me too. But bad timing shapes our lives. I mean, two great quotes there. One is, you deserve to be at the center of your own life. The other is, bad timing shapes our lives. Both of those, very true. And Peggy needs to be at the center of her own life. And I think that's my issue with with the school board storyline was that it was Peggy not being at the center of her own life. Whereas in Tuskegee, she really was. I think actually the Tuskegee storyline, yes, she was reporting again on something else, but that's what reporters do. But because it was part of her own personal experience also, I think she was at the center of her own life in that storyline, not less so in the school board storyline. And I hope in season three, she even is even more at the center of her own life and takes control of it and keeps it that way. I think she gave up too much control this season about where she stood as far as her own life goes. I don't know how you feel about that with between T. Thomas and and the other things that went on with this. Did she forget to be in control of her own life and give up too much control of her own life? I mean, it's very similar to Marion in a lot of ways, where men made advances that she may or may not have wanted. And then she was kind of dealing with the aftermath of like, what do you do now? Like, how do you respond? Like, yep, you guys kissed. Yep, that all happened. Yep, you've had these like flirtatious moments. Okay, now what? At some point, the women need to decide, like, I'm in this game and I am playing too. I, I don't want to just be preyed upon. I need to be, like, alert and playing this game as well. So I'll be interested, actually, for both of those young women who have very much been put together often for them to say, like, well, what is it that I want? Like, forget about whether this man is interested in me, whether it be T. Thomas or whether it be Dashiell or anybody else for that matter, Larry. What do I want? Who am I interested in? Not who's interested in me. And what do I want to do with my my profession? And with Marion, we see she wants to completely throw all in with teaching. Peggy, this idea of writing a novel, very interesting. It would be fascinating if she, like, wrote, like, Downton Abbey or something, like, really wild. Like anything could happen, right? So I'm I'm looking forward to where Peggy goes. And I'm glad to have a new a new avenue for her because the globe was very interesting and I and I'm not like I'm not I think that that was a good way for her to get out of her comfort zone and to see what other people were doing and to kind of understand the world a little bit bigger than her. 
I mean, hello, she had never even gone to the South before. So she didn't know anything about what was going on kind of outside of her her circle of people. So now she knows those things. Now I think she can come back to this society with like a really different viewpoint that she deserves to have out there. And if that comes through this novel or maybe she ends up opening her own publication, I don't know. Well, I guess she'll also get to keep her job on 61st Street now, too, as it turns out. Yeah. Are we getting into that yet? <laughs> we, we are. Before before we get there, though, I want one more thing because it's a great little scene. Dorothy and Mr. Scott, you're right. They do go a long way of reconciling because Mr. Scott was such a uh, proponent of the school board issue and the school closing issue. He really did step up and used his authority and really made the issue his own and really helped drive it forward, right? He made this comment a couple episodes ago where, you know, he needed a white person to say that his business was worthwhile before other people would shop there. And I think in some ways, the, there's an idea here where the school board wanted a man to also help stand up and say, this is a worthwhile issue to to allow these very strong women to be heard, right? It's just an unfortunate part of the time. You need, someone needs to grease that door to open it for you. And Arthur says at the beginning of this storyline, he said, he's, he's the one who says, you know, education is important and you, we need to be talking about education and, and the lack of it and, and, and building upon it and making sure we're all getting access to it. They laid the frown, the framework that education was going to be an important subject for him. Clearly as a pharmacist, education definitely was a big part of his life and for him to get there the thing that really made me smile was him and dorothy have a very cute little interaction as he's going up the stairs and she's hanging up her coat in their brown house and she walks away telling him you know don't wait too long come to dinner and he just watches her bustled booty go by as it walks away and he just smiles to himself so pleased and it just <laughs> it tickled me pink I was really glad that he finally found a way to speak the women in his lives language, which was mm. quit with your apologies. Well said. Actually do something. Actually Words or wins. Show up and do something. And he did. And he and like I said, he was the one who figured out, like, hold up a second. They're holding this meeting without us. Like he was an important part of making this actually happen. So he rose up. He did what he needed to do and show these women like, hey, I do care. And I am a good guy. And I am rooting for you guys and for everyone in our in our community. So let's do better. And I, I really feel like he he showed up when he needed to. Hey, that's all we can ask for the people in our lives, right? Well, Game of Thrones taught us that words are wins, right? And, and we, we, you and I talk about this. We talk about it with our kids. You can say, I'm sorry. You can say this. You can say that. But your actions are going to dictate what you actually feel. And Arthur came through with his actions this last, this last couple of episodes with this storyline. And that's why I'm okay with Peggy kind of being separated from the main cast in the storyline because this whole thing between Arthur and Dorothy and her has been a whole thing for an entire season, if not more. Like we could, I mean, they they tried to kind of put it to rest at the beginning of this season. They tried to kind of say like, well, maybe we can all be okay again. And Peggy's like, I'm never going to forget about this, right? So it wasn't, but I think like he is showing some true redemption here. And that is very heartwarming. So what are you saying? That you've come into money? Yes. A great deal of money. <laughs> Too much money, really. 
But doesn't this mean we won't have to sell the house? The servants won't lose their jobs and nothing needs to change? Exactly. Nothing needs to change. Bannister, you're still up. Uh, we're all still up, Mum. Awaiting your orders. Oh, good. Because I have some news. Mrs. Forte has inherited a sum from her late husband, so we will not be moving and all of your jobs are safe. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> if I may say so, what a relief. <laughs> Please feel free to tell them downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Ada. Yes. <laughs> is that your wish? Why, yes. Please tell them downstairs. Thank you, Bannister. Yes, Mum. Thank you, Mum. What was that about? I expect he knows he's working for Anveda now. I suppose that means they all are. Well, I still own this house, don't I? But Aunt Ada will be paying their wages. Things may be a little different in the future, Agnes. But I'm sure we'll work it out. Are you? Are you really? Seriously, my eyebrows like went up into my hairline when he was like, Miss Ada, is that what you want? I was like, <gasps> like, I loved all that. Now, okay. How are we feeling as a podcast about the idea that so soon a problem could be introduced and so soon a problem could be solved? I mean, it's I know, like we're covering I, it last because I'm hoping at, uh, at, at three hours people are turning it off. <laughs> no, no. Now, listen, here's the thing. This is consistent in the writing, okay? Yes. If it wasn't, I would have a huge freaking issue with it. I would say, no way, no way does she suddenly inherit a ton of money. Like, no way. But the way that this writing has gone, it's been like, here's a problem. Within the next episode or two, we find the solution. Here's a problem. Ex episode or two, we find the solution. They have done that for two full seasons. So there was no reason to believe that they were going to leave it to where just they would have lost all their money. And this is a big enough twist for me to change the dynamic where now Agnes is has to play the lower guy on the totem pole to Ada. I think that that's all great and brilliant. And it's the it's it is the way to switch up the whole dynamic in the house. Are you okay with it? Like, did you manage to make it through this or no? As soon as all of the paperwork is brought up earlier in the episode, Ada is talking about it with Dashiell. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, she's going to inherit a ton of money. I and think then, we both said that to each uh, other. No, because yeah, yeah. I feel like we were like texting each other during the finale. And it was like the second she was like, oh, there's so much paperwork. I can't possibly go through it. I was like, oh, uh, there's going to be an insurance policy. There's going to be money. They're going to be fine. There's a deuce ec machina in that paperwork is mm -hmm. what it is. It's a big old a big old box of gold in that paperwork. I, I, I listen. <laughs> it is cheesy as hell. When when they specific when they expressly say, so we won't have to sell the house and we won't have to fire any of the servants and nothing will have to change. 
And then and and also, but and also spell out and Aunt Ada will be paying their wages and Aunt Ada will be their boss. Like explained like every part of it. Yeah. I was just like, yeah, we get it. But again, if this was if this was a finale, a series finale, this is how you want them to go out, right? You don't want to think about penniless Van Rines and Brooks down, you know, down on the corner begging for change. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that they would if they had already announced a season three, like say halfway through rather than it the season was already over do you think they would have changed the ending do you think they would have had not they would have skipped this part and just been like oh man and like leave it with them putting like a for sale sign out on the the porch and be like okay i guess this is what's happening like is that how they could have ended it had they known they were having a season three I think very possibly we still get this, but we get it at the end of episode one or the beginning of episode two of season three. I think you're wrapping up the show. You want people to feel good about it. You do this, you wrap it up, and then you add in the twist of the power shift, right? There could have been easily have been some long lost Van Rhyne, you know, fortune found at the last minute. But no, make it Ada through Luke through the fortune he knew about but never came up in the six months that they were courting and then getting married living and then dying this grandfather grandfather only two generations by the way that makes them that makes her new money because in mrs astor's determination of who was old money and new money there had to be at least three generations between the first person who made the fortune and the current generation if this is luke's grandfather that's only two generations back their new money yeah yeah, the, the grandfather who ran a, a successful textile fortune in Boston that he's so enamored of that he didn't want to leave that we hear that part of the story, but not the fact that he was super rich and he left it going when he gave his life over to God just because it would have made so many people sad up in Boston. That didn't come up. It never came up. This seems like a significant thing. This is not like the great, 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 great grandfather of the fort of Luke Forte. This is his grandpa. It never came up. <laughs> so all of that, you know what, though? I laughed about it. It made me chuckle. And I put it all on the shelf because I want to see when when she turns, when Cynthia Nixon turns and goes, actually, some things may be a little different now. Mm -hmm. Oh my God! I give it, <laughs> put it in my veins, put it right into my veins. I want to see and Bannister. What a little shitster! He didn't need to I do that. I love that. Yeah, but you know what? That was a professional for you. Like he recognized who yeah. his boss was, and he did right by his new boss. You know, yeah. which man? Give him like all the credit for that. I, you know, I'm with you. I'm I. As wild as this twist is, and I don't, you know what, I don't even, there were so many parts about Luke that I don't feel like him and Ada like actually ever really had these like in-depth conversations. I think they were really great at loving each other in the moment, really great at dancing to the music box, but. They probably talked about the Bible a lot. I feel like they talked about Bible and parables a lot. And probably painting and stuff like that. Like, since he wasn't planning on using that money for the life they were leading, which clearly he wasn't, then it's not that pertinent that there's money when he dies. I know that sounds silly, but so long as he's alive and he doesn't, 
he doesn't intend on touching it or bringing it up or having it be a part of their life, then why would you talk about it? Agnes says, a letter from beyond the grave. (laughs) I mean, it has all of it. This this was Dark Shadows. This was like this was 1970s soap opera daytime. You know what? I watched all of that shit. Put it in my veins. Cheesy as hell. And I'm here for it. I am here for it. Caroline. Mm. You know what? And it explains a lot of the casting of Cynthia Nixon, because one of the things that we said at the very beginning was, boy, this isn't a role that she normally takes. She normally does not take such a quiet, sort of the more submissive, demure role, right? Well, if somewhere in the uh, information she was given or that the casting people were given was that there was going to be a switch up and that Ada was going to suddenly be the head of house, guess what? I think Cynthia Nixon knows how to play that just fine. I think that she can be ruthless and and tough and harsh, and she can say a lot of things that are going to come off completely polar opposite than the Ada we know. But Cynthia Nixon's completely capable of that. And and oh, again, sure. you I saw give... the flip. You, you saw the switch flip when she when after Bannister's interaction and like the way her head spins around and her eyes oh, go yeah. wide. Oh, you see she it. Realizes she mm-hmm. realizes that she's been crowned the queen, and it's like holy crap. So... Mar- Marion literally falling over sideways as the episode goes to black <laughs> and occurs. Oh, she's literally falling over sideways, laughing. It is. This is a night. 1980s sitcom ending with a with a with a soap opera style narrative and I'm fucking here for it. <laughs> you know, I think I think it's only again because they've been very consistent with the writing. Things always seem to find their way, right? Like we lose we lose one school but we kept two open. Like like something bad happens but something good happens too and it's 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 just it's continuously like that. And I think that when we see they've also been very consistent with having like a microcosm story with the bigger story. So we have the opera wars of the old money losing and we have the tiny story of the Van Ryan household in which all the power has also been switched from old money to new money. So I always think that's clever when when Lord Fellows does that and he has that that layer of like, this is what's happening societally, but here's how it's affecting like an individual household. Always smart, always cool. And, and I think that's what sells it to me. It's a credit to the writing and to the acting on the show that, again, we knew for 45 minutes that we were going to get here at the end. Again, as soon as they said paperwork, you and I both knew it. Yeah, I was just munching my popcorn. And, I, you know, I didn't sigh. I didn't like, oh, this is bullshit, you know, or it, nothing. I was, I, I'm, again, I'm here for it. I wanted it. I knew it was coming and I wanted to see it. And I got no regrets and I'm nothing but excited for season three when it comes to the storyline. We're about to get to season three predictions and questions and wish list items, but we still have the servants to finish off. We have to wrap up our servants, the most important of which I think John, inventor John Trotter and his clock and his patent. Uh, let's play the supercut of John and, and Larry, who maybe they're going into business together. So, Miss Scott thought you should consult me. She mentioned it, yes, and it seemed like a good idea. I'm flattered. Or I would be if I could understand what makes your clock different. My new escapement makes sure the mechanism never sticks, so the clock stays right on time. Because it needs no oil. That's it, sir. I won't pretend to know how it works, but I like your confidence. Hmm. Thank you, sir. Of course, 
An alarm clock is a simple thing. But it's a simple thing that could find a place in almost every bedroom in the world. So what should he do next? That's why I need your advice, sir. I have the patent, and my invention is protected, but I don't know how to take it further. Do you? Uh, not yet, but I know people I can ask. Thank you, <laughs> sir. It's good of you even to consider it. I should go. I need to get ready to serve dinner. I'll be in touch when I have an idea. Oh, uh, Mr. Trotter, you'll be pleased to hear there's been a lot of interest in your clock. I am pleased to hear it. Thank you. I think we should go into business together. Don't answer now. I'll be back with more detail. Good day. I love how soft Jack's voice is in those scenes. I am pleased to hear it. It's so nice. <laughs> I love this story. Again, I don't know why we have this story here. I I do. I'm being facetious when I say that. I know there's a whole segment of the population that doesn't understand why we're having the storyline. But to them, I'd say go back and watch season one. Specifically watch Jack the way Jack watches the upper crust of high society. The comments he makes to Bridget about maybe one day we'll be them. This is America. He makes comments like this is America and we can advance. And that the idea of the American dream that was really forged in this like 40 year period between the 1880s and the early 20th century, that idea, Jack is the living embodiment of that. That's why it's in this story. It is an American story and it is the upstairs downstairs is a part of Lord Fellows' writing. Anyone who watched Downton Abbey knows that the servants downstairs were as important to the story as what was going on upstairs. And Jack is telling a very specific story about America at this time through him. That's why he's there. Again, like Ada and, and her unlikely twist of fortune and fate, I'm here for it. I want to see Larry and Jack get into business next year. I think that's fantastic. I'm curious what you thought of this evolution of the storyline and how it's wrapping up here at the end of season two it gives all the all of the credence to why we've had to follow his story for this entire time because it's like okay so finally he's going to get pulled into like the the world of larry and marion and and really like have more going on here because i feel like we had kind of used it up in the downstairs like all of the all of the things that we could possibly handle like for real people have connections to the patent office for real people have connection to the clockmaker society for real like we kind of put a lot of like okay all right we'll go along with this but it better lead to something now this makes sense of course larry has money of course he wants to be an investor of course he's going to have you know his eye on building his own fortune for his own reasons outside of his parents so jack provides that possibility and i like that there's like this spirit of invention that is going on during this time we have it with agnes she's like i like having an inventor in the house like the spirit this excitement behind making something new creating something new is really important to keep alive in our story because that is what was going on in society what was going on at the time so jack is okay by me i am totally happy for him to have this storyline and it is very plausible they've made larry a very open-minded very um somebody who wants to help a friend but also i really i honestly believe that he did do his due diligence and decide that this was something reasonable to invest in I, you know i think this would be a very exciting partnership who would ever want to turn away from the russell muscle 
right? I mean, mm. look what George did and what he has built. And clearly his son, and they went out of their way to to evolve Larry in season two to be his father in miniature or an evolving person in his father's, you know, uh, mold. You know, it's a good idea. He copped to the idea without needing oil. It makes it a much better idea. They, I mean, he says he knows how the clock works. You understood the benefit of not having oil, Larry. I think you're doing pretty good. I didn't catch to why that was such a big deal, but I've never had oil an alarm clock. So there you go. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I also think it's interesting when with Larry and Marion and the way Jack, the original audio clip that I played earlier of them kissing on the stoop was actually titled Larry and Marion dot, 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 and Jack, you know, because it's interesting. He's going to be in business. He's a servant in the Van Ryan house who may be in business with Marion's suitor, who also has romantic feelings for a current lady's maid who may be an ex-lady's maid in the Russell downstairs. How wild would it be if things played out that Jack and Adelaide were at a dinner in the Russell dining room as guests, not as servants? George and Bertha are once again sharing a table with an ex-lady's maid. The Russells are making ladies' maids all over the place, be famous and rich. That's I don't know. Funny. It's crazy. It's And then you still have Bridget's, you know, over in the Van Ryan house, who, I don't know, did you catch this? It seemed to be that Bridget and Mrs. Bauer were the likely people to be retained if the Van Ryans had to move to, to smaller quarters. I thought that was interesting because you and I thought it would for sure be Mrs. Bauer and Mrs. Armstrong who would be the lock and Bridget would be the one looking for a job. Maybe with Mrs. Bauer being a little bit older, like they, they still needed to make sure to keep track of like the rest of the household, right? Like, because yes, Bauer would be like cooking and stuff, but Bridget could be doing other things too. So it makes sense to me, but I really, I love the idea of celebrating the self-made man and the self-made, you know, fortune. And that's everything that Jack represents. And I think, I think not only is it plausible that we see them at one of these dinner tables, I think it is extremely likely we see them at one of these tables. And you know, it will be catnip for George to have a self-made inventor man at his dinner table and we know agnes has already said that she likes the idea of supporting an inventor right there through jack we have made through jack not to say anything about marion and larry whatever that may be we have a point of commonality now between the van rines and the russells who thought mm. that was possible <laughs> very few not much else really to wrap up with the uh van rine downstairs it looks like they're all going to keep their jobs and everything is fine and we're all very happy so let's go over to the Russells uh, downstairs. We have Mr. Watson. He is definitely leaving. He, Collier, he's going to begin his life anew as Mr. Collier, reti Collier retired banker, banker and uh, father to Flora. <laughs> Collier and banker is hard to say. But you know what? What I liked about that whole part, too, was when there was like a moment when they were like, oh, maybe you'll come back and visit. And they were like, no, he will yeah. never come back to visit. <laughs> yeah, no, church was very final about that because Collier, because Watson doesn't say anything. It's Church who says, no, he won't be back, but not in a bad way, in a no, he he has to return to his life. And this his life is not downstairs at the Russell house. He may return here, but if he does, it'll be upstairs in the dining room, not down here. 
I also kind of thought it was looking at the audience like he is not a Janine oh. Turner situation. He oh, yeah, no, not for sure. coming yeah. back. <laughs> I definitely looked up to see if he's uh, on, on Broadway coming up in any new shows because uh, I fully expect that we will not see him and we will see him in some revival hitting the stage in uh, 2024, 2025. For sure. But he's leaving. But Miss Andre, the new French lady's maid, staying. Do you do you have any improved vibe on her? She starts off a little snidey with her. They should find a proper concert hall next time. I didn't have any issue with her. She has the right amount of like sarcastic comments and the right amount of apparently being a skilled person to be downstairs where she's not going to be like a liability for anyone or a problem. So I'm cool with her as being an ad. I don't have that that much of my arms around her yet but i think that that's by design because you know we still had to wait to hear if she was staying and then we had to know that watson was definitely leaving like i think we were in flux with that so my feelings for her come in season three i think we're given a little bit of her sweet and a little bit of her sour i you know she does have the little snide comment when uh chef josh and mrs bruce come in and they're wet and they're talking about mendelssohn and and the finally the orchestra gave it up and they ran home in the rain and they're all being giggly you know she kind of sniffs uh you know next time you should have bought a, a proper concert hall and then leaves all right well thanks you know some people like listening to music out in the open air miss andre but then she's also perfectly nice later on she wishes everyone well and she's just kind of there trying to do her job so i agree with you i don't think we have a good handle on her yet who knows but it's uh you know anytime you add a new face to it you automatic you automatically introduce the idea of some intrigue you know they're not bringing her on to not do anything right she's going to do something she's going to contribute to the show somehow so how that is who knows what did you think of mrs bruce and chef josh particularly the fact that they're going to the opera particularly to the fact that mrs bruce kind of was very open with maybe having a relationship with chef josh josh to bertha and bertha didn't freak out about it I thought all of that was handled very casually in a way that I didn't know that it could be like inviting the servants to come to the Met and actually be able to sit there and watch the show. Uh, to me, I thought that that would be more dramatic, like, but it was said very casually and very like, you know, if you'd like to come, you know, here's, they're not great seats, but you know, but you'll be able to see stuff well enough, whatever kind of stuff. It was all very casual and, and even just like, oh, you like music? Oh, okay. I'm not sure a thousand percent what we were supposed to glean from this. And definitely I would invite our listeners that if you guys have a specific thing that we were supposed to get, most especially for me, like when we see like Miss Bruce and Chef Josh like wave up to Bertha and she waves down to them. Like there's something to that that I think we were supposed to glean and I don't know if it's just like, look, every strata of society loves Bertha right now. Like she is doing no wrong by all different class levels right now. I don't know if that's what we're supposed to be getting. Like she's she's sort of a beloved by all right this second. Yeah, I took it because I didn't see them wave up at her. No, she waved down at she them. She very much waves down at them, which I thought was a very gracious moment because she didn't need to share that spotlight but the effect of it was everyone as you would imagine everyone sitting around them and all of the heads specifically turned and looked at mrs bruce and and you know chef uh chef josh that was gracious of her part she shared part of her success and her moment 
with them. I thought that was actually incredibly sweet. Uh, it made me smile every time I saw it. Actually, really touched me. And and because the it's not just she didn't give like an imperial like queen wave. She gave like a little like hey, kind of like she just kind of like fluttered her fingers. It yeah. was very sweet and very kind and and very in the moment. Like I'm I'm gonna share this moment with all of you because you all helped make this possible. I am just struggling a little bit of like that's not exactly Bertha. She's she's not very much about the casual little wave and the everybody you know everybody share in my spotlight so that's where I was like taking pause where I was like huh okay were we supposed to get something else out maybe of she's that? being romantic I, because she takes she she likes Mrs. Bruce and I think we have always seen her have very respectful relationship with Mrs. Bruce and take her advice she takes her advice on Miss Andre she she listens to her when it comes to staffing recommendations obviously she makes up her own mind no one makes up Bertha's mind for her but she definitely they have shown us time and time again that she listens to Mrs. Bruce's advice more so I'd say than she even listens to churches I think Mrs. Bruce is her most is her most prized uh employee in that house so I think there's a level of respect there. So I think she's a little taken aback. One, when she when she realizes that Mrs. Bruce actually has interest beyond being her lady's maid, that she likes music. And I think she's a little taken aback in a good way that she would want to take Chef Josh, who Bertha's not a huge fan of still, but loves his cooking. And I think, I think maybe, I'm going to take a very optimistic point of view. I think she's being a little romantic here. And I think she's making a little magic for these two because they very much take it that way. She is literally sitting there with her mouth hanging open as she's taking in her surroundings. Like straight mouth dropped open that Chef Josh has to sell her. Close your mouth. Act like you've been here before in a very sweet kind of funny way. She, Bertha made their year by, by being at this event that only a certain number of people in all of New York got to go to. Carrie Astor, Lena Astor, Agnes Van Ryn, they weren't at, Ward McAllister, they weren't at the Mets' first opening night. Chef Josh and Mrs. Bruce were. I mean, yeah, they're going to hold on to that. I don't know what we're supposed to get out of that. Like, I appreciate what you're saying from the character's point of view. But I'm saying and then it was a big deal for Bertha. And it was a big deal well, for Maybe Josh she's blessing the relationship. Maybe. I, she had no idea who Mrs. Bruce was going to bring when she said, you can have a ticket and bring a friend. So it's not like she was matchmaking or anything because she didn't know who she was taking. Right. But then she says, I think I may bring Chef Josh. And she's like, yeah, oh. and that was fine. And that was yeah. fine. But she didn't matchmake that. She didn't give two tickets in order for Mrs. Bruce no, and no, Josh no. to go together. But so that so what are we supposed to get? How does this move our story forward? What are we seeing? I think she's rewarding good service. I think I think okay. Bertha I think Bertha Larry says it when he's walking Marion across the road. My mother is a manager. That's what she excels at. She is excellent at managing things. And I think Bertha doesn't lose sight of the fact that she's not doing all of this by herself. I think she is aware that there's a village involved here. Man, that is so magnanimous. I, I just, I don't see Bertha Russell saying it takes a village. I, I see her saying it takes me. I think she, I don't think she says it. I think she shows it via things like this. It cost her nothing. It wasn't like she went out of her way. There were two tickets. It was, it was kismet for her that they had just talked about music and that what they were going to be, they, the Faust being played there. 
it it just worked out in her timing. I don't think she went out of her way to like bump two people out of their seats. I, it cost her no, nothing no. to do Nobody's this. Nobody's saying any of that. Yeah, yeah but yeah, that's no, no. just I think, not like Bertha. That's just not like Bertha. So I'm just wondering, like, we have seen no, no acts of kindness where she didn't get something out of it. Now, maybe she simply got something out of it because she made sure her entire, all the seats were full. You know, and so she gave some tickets out that weren't going to be used. So good. Two more butts and seats. Like, that's a positive thing for her. But I, there's something else. I I appreciate what you're saying narratively. And I appreciate how you're how you're kind of weaving it into like, yes, but look at all these wonderful things. And she's sharing that. Bertha is not about sharing the praise. Bertha is not about sharing the praise. So I, that doesn't really fly as like her motivation. I'm okay with it if we're going to kind of a little pretend that like, well, maybe she just had this little soft spot moment. She gives her the ticket. She has no idea who she's taking. And it turns out to be Chef Josh. Cool. But it wasn't in thanking Chef Josh and Mrs. Bruce for their service. Like, she oh, I think it was. I, I think she was thanking Mrs. Bruce for hers. I don't think she gave a shit that it was Chef Josh. I think just from intrigue that she was maybe surprised that it was Chef Josh. I think I think it was very much her thanking Mrs. Bruce for for, for, for loyal and good service right with mrs bruce on the job it's actually one thing that bertha doesn't have to actually worry about when adelaide is on the job she triple checks everything that's going on we don't see her looking over mrs bruce's shoulder at all mm, okay well i am eager to hear what the rest of our audience has to think like why was this a big deal what do you guys think what what were we supposed to get out of it why did why was it mrs bruce why was it chef josh why did she bother to wave she could have just glanced at them and they could have glanced at her and she could have smiled and that could have been enough but she actually waves at them and stuff all these things i i don't know if we're supposed to think we're starting to see a little bit of a softer side like maybe once bertha is is done winning this opera war maybe she can put her her fangs away a little bit and maybe we're going to see a little bit of a different side of her that was a little bit out of character for her so i'm curious for season three what does that mean Let's get to season three predictions, questions, wish list. Uh, I have a list here. Obviously, please let me know if you have any you want to jump in with. And listeners, let us know what your predictions are for season three. What questions do you want answered or need answered for season three? What's your wish list? What do you want to see? What topics do you want to see covered in history that may come up in 1884, 1885, or any whatever, whatever else may be? Uh, my first one obviously has to be Ada, the money shift. Ada calling the shots. Bannister is tilting the power structure here when he looks to Ada for sign-off. Completely flips the power dynamic in the Van Ryan house. What's your guess on how much focus is on that versus just them living their life now when season three picks up? No, I think it's going to be a huge focus. I think I think that the growing pains of the younger sister becoming the person to call the shots is going to be extremely friction filled. And uh, I look forward to that because, you know, seeing Agnes agitated is probably one of the best versions of her when we get like her snarky comments we get her a little bit the whole thing (laughs) i love the whole thing so yeah i think that's definitely season three overarching constant constant clash of like how to make this work and i think that ada might overstep her bounds every once in a while and and create some like extra drama that you know maybe she she isn't quite sure how much power to wield over others so we'll see how that 
how that flies. What do you think about Larian? Do you think that Marion's going to move forward with Larry or do you think they're going to hold off on that one? Oh, she has to be so careful because if she's going to explore his relationship with Larry, the words of Agnes saying you can't afford a third strike have to be ever present in her head, which puts an unfair amount of pressure on Marion. But also, it's the reality of the situation for this time period if she wants to stay in New York. So she has to be so careful balancing that relationship with Larry. Almost like if she's going to get into a relationship with Larry, she has to be ready to marry Larry. I think that's the yeah. mindset she really has to go into. If she's going to kiss him and and be seen with him in the in the central box, she's got to be mentally ready to marry Larry because it's going to ruin her otherwise. And I definitely say, please learn your lesson. Don't hang around with this guy. If you are not willing and ready to get married, don't even be doing, don't hang out on the stoop smooching. Bad idea, Marianne. One great thing, just going back to what you were saying about Ada and Agnes and the flipping of the power dynamic, a great way of seeing how that plays out is Marion says to Bannister when he's waiting for their instructions, he says, Ada's just got the most wonderful news. And instead of Ada getting to say what it is, Agnes jumps in and tells Bannister Ada's news. That's the kind of bullshit that will not be allowed to fly now with Ada pulling the purse strings. It was such a wonderful last ditch of Agnes being the the one who gets to give the news, even if the news is Ada's to give and not hers. It was it was very specific. It was Ada has such great news and Agnes gives it. And and Ada, and Ada doesn't say anything. I think Ada calling the purse strings, it's gonna kind of thing where she's like, Agnes, it's my news to give. Yeah. And they'll be there. I think that we will see a lot of growing pains about that. What do you think about Bertha and, jo Bertha and George, though? Like now that we have this whole situation with the opera wars put behind us, we still have Gladys and the Duke. And we still, of course, have George's and his business dealings that are that are constantly being like questionable and what's going to happen next over there. But the clash over the Duke and everything going on with Gladys, I think that situation is going to come to a head real quick. Do you think Gladys is going to be like forced to go along with this and like actually marry the Duke? Or do we see George getting her out of it? It's interesting because if they continue with the Dollar Princess storyline, which they with this episode really seem to be committing to. Yeah, Gladys would get forced. But the show behind the scenes, the show has said this is not Bertha is not Alva Vanderbilt. We are not telling her story here. So even if she is an inspiration for this character, we don't feel like we are trapped to tell everything the way it happened with Alva and Consuelo, which maybe signals that there may be a twist here and the twist may be George. Because obviously I agree with you. I, I think I think it is going to come fast. It is going to be a clash. It is going to be over the specific thing. This idea of Gladys doesn't love the Duke and George. George made the very specific promise. I tell you, when this is going to be covered in season three, you're going to get a previously on of George telling of when George told Gladys, I will support you against your mother for a love match. That's going to come up to haunt him. And I think he means it. So I think it is going to cause the friction between him and Bertha. The question is, how long will that go on for season three? Right. George was in the doghouse for two and a half episodes this season where their marriage finally had discord out of eight out of six out of 17 episodes. They spend about two and a half of them, you know, on the outs. This feels even more significant because this is very personal. 
this is their daughter and this is this seems even more personal than turner's trumped up lies of things that didn't happen that george you know lie of omission this is their daughter and this is her future and this is her husband and and literally their child going out the door maybe having to go to europe in a marriage i mean she's not going to live in new york if she marries the duke she's going to go live in devon and and go live in london or wherever like that's a lot and so the question for me is they're definitely going to clash. My question is how long does that, how much of season three does that take up? I think it depends on what was promised. If Bertha promised like dating, promised an opportunity to be with Gladys, that's one thing. If she promised her hand in marriage, that's a other thing. <laughs> and we don't know how much she promised because it was, I mean, there was a ton of like, what did she promise him? What did she promise him? What did she promise him? That's like, what did she promise him? And so that, that is going to be the whole bag for me is like, if she just said you have opportunity to, to date Gladys, my, my daughter is single. We'd love you to like get to know her or something like that. Okay. If she's like, for sure, she'll marry you. This is all just like, we're just getting the details ready. That's different. And, and that I could actually see Bertha and George absolutely exploding over. What's next for Peggy? What do you want to see her doing? Where do you want her to character to go? I like the idea of a novel. I think that that's interesting. I don't know exactly how that keeps her like living her own life versus just like writing about other people's lives. But I could definitely see that. I think that there's loads going on in in the black community that I think that she could shed light on through her writing that would be really great to like have next door to the to the Van Ryan story and everything that's going on there. We need to know what's going on in larger New York and what's going on around the around the country. I definitely think Peggy could bring that to the table. I think if they continue doing the Ida B. Wells inspired story, uh, I, I'd like to see Peggy become kind of a civil rights freelance writer, which is where Ida B. Wells really found her mark after. I mean, she actually spent time at the Globe and knew T. Thomas Fortune. She really ended up making her mark doing doing kind of that freelance writing and civil rights. And also uh, the suffragette movement is really starting to take off. So I, I, I wouldn't be opposed to seeing that start to take hold, which has crossover with Alva Vanderbilt. So it would make sense. It would have crossover with Bertha, the, the suffragette movement. So it would be a way of putting Peggy into mainline storylines of the high society storylines that didn't need to run through Marion. And we get Peggy interacting with other members of the cast. I would love that. So I, I really think that just takes us to what's next for Oscar. Someone we didn't really talk about a whole lot in this episode because he was just there to be yelled at by his mom and be forced to listen to the Academy, even though it was kind of funny when he was trying to leave. And she's like, you're not going anywhere. What's next for Oscar? He's got no love. He's financially disgraced. You know, that's going to get around town. Where does he go from here? How worried do we have to be about an Oscar suicide, which is something I just can't get out of my mind. And it keeps bubbling up. He even says to Mary in this episode, she may get over it. I don't know if I will. Yeah, I feel a lot of concern about Oscar. I felt a lot of concern about him in the previous episode, but the way that he was just like a crumpled up ball, like in a chair the whole time. And he was like on mom restriction where she was like basically yanking on his arm wherever they were. I don't see anything good happening for Oscar right away. I mean, I, I do think he's going to have to come through some sort of redemption for what he did, you know, to Agnes. 
I think every single time that Ada has something to say that Agnes doesn't like, she's going to she's going to look fiercely at Oscar. <laughs> like, I wouldn't even have to be listening to her if it wasn't for you, you know. So I think there's a lot more ugliness to come for Oscar. And the idea of him like getting married or having any type of like love life at this point, I'm just like, man, I I think because everything with Maud was so intense and extreme and then now the aftermath has been such an insane fallout shoot i mean i don't know how you do anything after that do you see him actually maintaining any type of relationship with anyone i can't i can't how could how could he how can he trust how will he ever feel like he's not just being set up for slaughter i mean if he tries to have a a, a real romantic relationship he gets beaten in an alley if he tries to have a show relationship he gets swindled out of all of his money where is there where is there a bright spot and then john just kind of makes him be on his knees in front of him and john pats him on the head like where where does oscar have the soft space to put his heart i i don't know I don't know. I think Oscar, Oscar is going to have a rough season three. Now, now we know Gilded Age does have a way of kind of of speeding past certain things. So it's possible. It's possible that in an episode or two of season three, he can have enough of a redemption to be back on his two feet. Or we could see him slide down a horrible dark path. Like anything is possible. I, yeah. I don't. I, I don't think there's going to be a gentle middle road. I think it will either be, you know, somehow he hoodwinks Ada into running her money, <laughs> or oh God, or no. it will just be a slide into either alcoholism or aggressive relationships that leave him physically wounded, uh, like he had at the beginning of this season. Self destructive behavior. I feel like. I feel like the the odds of a real destructive lifestyle uh leading to either even more public humiliation feels feels in the cards for oscar i don't think he's going to have a good time of it does he need to move into to agnes and ada's home because that's a question mark about whether or not he used his own money as well Right. I mean, presumably he still has the his job that was his banking job that whatever was paying him. So maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't That's know. A question mark for me. So a lot of that, a lot of that is going to be dependent on like, what did Oscar exactly do with the money that was his versus that was Van Ryan money, generational money, very unclear. So, so maybe they'll, they'll explain that a little bit in season three and maybe they won't, you guys, maybe they're going to breeze right past this and say, you know, that financial disaster was fixed and we're all good. And we're thinking about Ada being the boss now. So Luke had extra paperwork that we found later <laughs> on. That actually left money to Oscar as well. Who that knows? reimbursed him for Maud Beaton's <laughs> bullshit. Oh, my God. Who even knows? Or Maud comes back on the scene and is like, I was just visiting my aunt. I she never really left. was sick. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Done. That brings us to the end of... Season two of The Gilded Age. You guys, I feel like we had so much fun talking about this season two, and I'm very much looking forward to season three where we can bring you back interviews and get a chance to talk to all of our favorite people that that run the show because we have no strike. Hooray! So moving forward, we'll be able to do so much more with this show, and we're so excited. This is Caroline. 
And this is Mike. Thank you so much for listening to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a five-star review. And while you're there leaving that five-star review, write a little, write, write some words. Leave, leave, leave some words along with that five-star review, because if you do and you say nice things, we're going to read them on the air. Like these... Oop, taking off my glasses. Like these two five-star reviews, the bull, one of these really made me laugh. Uh, five-star review. Love your show. This is from RoseMe99. I just wanted to drop a quick note thanking the both of you for the fun and comprehensive podcast for the Gilded Age. Nothing gives me more joy than to see a two-plus-hour podcast for a show that's less than an hour in length. Thank you, Mike and Caroline, and happy holidays. Well, thank you, RoseMe99. I love talking about it for three hours. This next uh, review, this is the one that made me laugh. This is from... Aisiana, Aisiana, Aisiana writes, say it ain't so, five stars. I don't want to believe that one of the best TV series podcasts is on a long hiatus. You disappeared faster than Oscar spent that Van Ryan money. Would love to hear you again. Well, Aisiana, we're bad at finales. I got sick. Caroline got sick, but we're getting there. We're putting it out there. So thank you for sticking with us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for everyone who made this a top 50 podcast. A lot of the season, it's been in the 200 and top 250 podcasts for four months now at this point. That's because of you guys. We, we, we talk because we want to talk about the show, but we also want to hear from you and we want to interact with you. Go join our Facebook group. Find us on social media. Leave us five-star reviews. We want to hear what you think. We're going to be back for season three. Like Caroline said, no strike hopefully next year when we're getting ready to do the show. So we will have more interviews with you. We also have some other fun stuff that we're working on that may happen over the summer. So we'll let you know. Subscribe to Pod Clubhouse for sure because we have tons of other shows that we are covering as well as like Beacon 23 is out right now. But we just finished like things like Your Honor and what else, Mike? Lots All of the Yellowstone. If you're into Yellowstone, 1883, 1923. We've got so much coverage for you guys. Definitely go check out some of our other podcasts if you miss us chatting with you. Thank you guys again for listening and we'll see you for season three of The Gilded Age. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.